Hello and welcome to Splatter Chatter, where October never dies. I am one of your hosts, Miss Melmore. And I am the other host, Mr. Craigers. He is, and we are the home of all things horror, haunted, and Halloweeny. And tonight, uh, to read Mr. Craigers' brilliant little intro here, we are asking, ready pledge? We're enrolling in Windsor College to dive into Wes Craven's blockbuster slasher sequel, Scream 2, to uh, honor the release of Scream 6. (laughs) (laughs) It works out. It works out. It does. Um, Yeah, we're recording this on Monday before Scream officially releases on Friday, and we have, for the most part, avoided the the nefarious uh, bits of information on the internet. I've seen one thing that wasn't huge, but would have been nice to experience uh, in real time. But we've, we've mainly dodged the the info about the killer, which apparently leaked a couple of weeks ago. Yes. Um, so good on us for that. We just need to make it a couple more days because speaking of seeing it in real time, you and I will be seeing it together. Yes, we will. And we'll be seeing it with friend of the show and Splatter Shatter Tumblr curator, Miss Colleen. Who has an undisclosed amount of knowledge about Scream. Right? We're unclear on we were, that, but... we were just talking about that off mic. We're not, we can't remember how much Miss Colleen knows about Scream. So she might need a crash course. She might not actually want one before going into Scream. <laughs> you know, it's the kind of thing I feel like you can just you know, <laughs> dive right in. You'll get it. You'll get there. Um, but yeah. But before we do that, um, I think we need to do a bit of a read, watch, listen, check in. Because I actually think it's been a while since we, because we didn't do one for our um, booze and booze. Right. And so since this is our first episode proper since January, there's probably a lot to go over. Yes. Um, I know that... I've definitely got a couple things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I finished the book, The Last House on Needless Street. Okay. Uh, by Katrina Ward, which was um, very trippy and creepy and had an interesting and ultimately very sad twist at the end. Mm-hmm. So if that sounds up your alley, go for it. If you like yourself some... Creepy and ultimately very sad twist. And ultimately very sad twist. Go for it. Uh, I'm currently reading Fairy Tale by the master himself. Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, taking me a, a bit to get through it, not because it's bad, it's very good, um, but just because I've been watching a lot of movies in preparation mm-hmm. for the Oscars. Oh, yeah. You, 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 Mr. Kreger started, I think, last year trying to watch every single thing that's nominated in every category. Um, yep so so and i love doing that but it you know doesn't leave me with as much time to read things like fairy tale as i would like but it's good i am enjoying that as well um let's see i started watching the show evil on paramount oh i have a friend who watched that and really i don't even know if she enjoyed it but she certainly enjoyed telling me about it it's it's interesting. I, I'm almost done with season two. I prefer season one. Um, it's easy to watch. I love the idea and how philosophical it can get. 
Mm -hmm. um, I'm just not sure where it's going. And so That's the vibe I got from her. Yeah. Was you would occasionally have these sort of um interesting concepts or sort of interesting themes, but then also be like, I have no idea what the show wants to be. Yeah. Or what the trajectory is. So So I'm hoping for a little more cohesiveness in season three, but I'm not like I'm not jumping ship by any means. I just wanna mm -hmm. I wanted to tighten up a little bit. Gotcha. And then the last thing I think I will highlight is that I saw um, Knock at the Cabin, nice. a new M. Night Shyamalan movie, um, which I quite enjoyed. Mm -hmm. I heard there was, from you and from other people, that there were some differences between, like thematic differences between the book and the movie. There are. Um, they also changed the ending mm -hmm. um, to align with, um, sort of those new thematic threads that um, M-Dog was pulling at. M-Dog. And yeah, you definitely, you, you walk away from the film feeling something and taking away something different than you do when you close um, Trembley's book. Interesting. Yeah. Now, did you read Cabin at the End of the World? I did. So, and I was getting the vibe even from the trailer that they were changing some things or just were going for a slightly different vibe. Um, and I also got that from them changing the title because I was surprised. Because, like, everyone, when they heard that M. Night Shyamalan's working, at knock, working on something called Knock at the Cabin, everyone was like, I think that's a, a adaptation of Cabin at the End of the World. Yeah. Um, and I got the feeling, I was like, okay, they're changing the title. They're not referencing the source material like at all in the merchant or in the marketing. And just some of the elements, like some of the things seeing in the trailer, I was like, I feel like they're trying to like differentiate it from the book. Um, so curious. I'm also curious what Paul Tremblay's thought feelings were on on that. I know from what I've seen, at least, he has seemed pretty quiet. Um, I don't know. I don't know if there was like a, maybe like a contracting dispute or like if he wasn't really involved. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. How about you? What's been on your horror radar? Uh, well, the first thing I went to go see this year was Megan. Yeah. Queer icon Megan. Megan. Um, Bisexual I, AI goddess we all deserve. Yes. <laughs> I fucking love Megan. It was funny because there was some article um, headline on them. The they're they're like a queer outlet, um, and they had this headline the week that the the movie came out that was like, "Why Megan has the queer community in a chokehold," <laughs> which I found very funny. Um, but it was great. I mean, I enjoyed it. I did hear that the unrated cut was not worth watching, um, which is a bummer. Yeah. It was mainly just some extra Fox that, that were in there. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, it was, it was a movie that knew exactly what it, what it was. And it was like the right amounts of earnest and the right amounts of like aware that it's batshit. Right. Um, and I think nothing has ever been more earned than the dance sequence huh. 
Like you knew it was coming. You're like, yep, everything that's led to this has really prepared me for for this moment. Um and I can't wait for all the the Megan like drag like mm-hmm. that's gonna be happening soon, probably especially at Halloween. Um, especially my, with that dance. My secret hope is that Megan shows up at the Oscars. <laughs> I it yeah. I I really I enjoyed that movie. I thought it was a lot of fun. It's the kind of thing where you just you have to you should see it with other people and see it with like-minded people. Um and just maybe with know, a cocktail or two. Probably. And just take it for what it is. Just let it let it ride. Um <laughs> and I was very and as soon as it was over, I was like, I cannot wait for the sequel. Which is greenlit. <laughs> the inevitable sequel. Um but yeah, no, it was it was great. Um very fun. I've been watching The Last of Us, uh, which is based on the horror video game, um, which I've also watched to play through the video game. And I would say the show is almost like at different times, shot for shot. And then they changed a few elements. Melanie Linsky is in it and has like an original character that wasn't in the video game. And she obviously crushes it. Um, but um, it's very good, um, especially since I'm usually not a huge fan of like post-apocalyptic zombie type stuff. Um, It's usually not your jam. Yeah, I found this very good. And it's like, you know, a great mixture of, you know, zombie horror, survivalist thriller. um, You know, and Pedro Pascal has just really cornered the market on playing reluctant dilfs. Oh, man. Really, really happy for him. (laughs) Yeah. That is that is high on my list of uh, post Oscar television to catch up on. And you'll get to watch. You'll get to binge it because the last episode comes out this week. Yeah, I it kind of works out really well. I yeah. will have to wait week to week. And it has been greenlit for season two, which um, is based on the second. Will be based on the second, the follow up game, which um, okay. is also very good and devastating. Um, but yeah, so those are. Oh, and I, we were talking before this, I, I watched Skinnamarink, um, and uh, I'm in the more skeptical camp of it. I appreciate what it's trying to do. There's definitely some very creepy, like, downright scary elements. Like, it does a good job of really getting at, like, when you wake up at 3 a.m. and your, like, brain's kind of, you know frazzled and you you know you're seeing shapes in the dark and think you're hearing things and you're suddenly like what about that killer clown i i thought about earlier today and and that sort of thing um but you know my biggest gripe with it was how long it was for like what you got in return um it's 100 minutes which for what it is is pretty is asking a lot of uh the viewer so um, but it's worth a watch to to form your own opinion about, I think. Yeah, for sure. I'm curious to see that and compare it to the Outwaters. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people have been like pitting them against each other and taking sides. And I don't think that's necessary. Um, there's room for everything, mm-hmm. but just because of the thematic similarities um that people are saying between the two of them, I'm 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 almost thinking about doing like a double feature one night. Mm-hmm. 
watching both of them back to back. And then I will probably have horrendous night terrors or something. Yeah. It could be an interesting experiment. Yeah, I think I watched Skin Rink in the middle of the day, which honestly was the right move. Because again, like, um, you know, there are parts of it where, and it's not even that they're like, I call them cheap shot jump scares because I was like, come on, like that would get anyone and that was fucked up. Um, but some of it is fully like, just like, yeah, like I definitely had the, a nightmare about that when I was a kid or envisioned that. And um, it's also very, you know, grounded in like 90s kid nostalgia. Like there's a lot of toys that, you know, and like, just the type of house it is and the carpet and like, oh yeah, it's the middle of the night and the TV's on and just like that whole vibe. Um, yeah. is, uh, especially cause like when I was a kid, when I was scared, I used to sleep with the TV on, like after I watched something that I wasn't supposed to watch. And um, I so like- I sleep to the TV a lot. Yeah. I honestly, cause my uh, girlfriend just got home from, you know, her, her weekend away. And last night I was like, because I just watched all the Scream movies <laughs> back to back. And like when I went to bed, I was like, hmm, I don't know. Like, it, we don't have a TV in our room. But I was like, would it make me feel better to just have the TV on upstairs and just know that it's on? Yeah. <laughs> just to be safe. Um, but um, yeah, so definitely worth, um, you know, giving it a giving it a whirl and just, you know, seeing how you feel about it. I mean, it's one of those things where it's like, I think there is in there's merit even in the fact that it like inspires discourse. Mm -hmm. I don't think that is like, you know, a reason to say that the film is great, mm -hmm. that it, you know, gets a reaction out of people, but I think it's worth noting that like, yeah, there's a few different ways to view it and a few different ways to feel about it. So sure. And I think there's value in watching and even rewatching things that you don't love. Um, just because, you know, just to to be in there and be be thinking about that discourse and you know it's kind of mm -hmm. like it's like they say you know like when you write it's it's valuable to read books that are great and books that are terrible mm -hmm. um, they're both going to teach you things and it's the same with with films so yeah and i will say it has like i definitely softened on it the the further i got away from it mm -hmm. like when i first watched it i was like pretty annoyed with like the thesis of the film and like just the vibe of like you know like feeling like it was very like okay this is an experimental film for experimental film's sake and you know like getting kind of a bad taste in my mouth and then the further i got away from it and thought about it more um i was like well actually you know like let's you know sit down and think about this for a minute um right and i softened to it so yeah, and sometimes that's what it takes. Sometimes it takes distance. Sometimes it's about the context in which you watch a movie. Yeah. You, know, um, you watched it in the middle of the day. That's a different experience. I, watching it in the middle well, of the night. I think it's totally valid to say, you know what, I'm going to watch it at 10 p.m. at night. I, uh, I, I stand by watching it in the middle of the day. Yeah, yeah. And that's, yeah, that's your call and you're right and... That is my right as American. Damn right. <laughs> For now. <laughs> I mean, who knows? They're slashing those things left and right, so. Uh, slashing? You said you Slash, don't. Speaking of slash, what a great segue. <laughs> 
well, 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 I do think we need to be a slashing and a stabbing into our main mm-hmm. discussion, don't we? Yeah. Um, but before we do, let's take a listen to the trailer. College students were murdered last night during a sneak preview of the new movie Stab. It's starting again, Randy. This has nothing to do with us. Randy, a guy in a ghost mask hacked up two people in the movie theater telling our life story. Hi, Gail Weathers, author of the Woodsboro Murders. Do you think the killer will strike again? We have no evidence that this is a serial killer. It's a classic case of life imitating art, imitating life. Are you suggesting that someone's trying to make a real-life sequel? Do you think someone's trying to duplicate Woodsboro? It looks like it. I think you have a copycat on your hands, Chief. Hello? Hello, Sydney. Remember me? What do you want? I want you. It's showtime. Police are everywhere. There is some freaked out psycho trying to follow in Billy Loomis's footsteps. You probably already know. The way I see it, someone's out to make a scene. So it's our job to observe the rules of the scene. Number one, the body count is always big. Two, death scenes are always much more elaborate. I just want to sit here and wait and see who drops next. I'm not interrupting anything, am I? So, in a world, I just like doing that. Like I, actually, I, I, I did it at dinner just for no reason. Well, actually, not for no reason, but I didn't watch the trailer beforehand, so I don't know how it starts. Yeah, I have I no think, idea. I think there's narration. I think it probably opens with a phone call, right? Even though that's not how the movie I know that's how the original trailer opens. Yeah, so maybe I'm just picturing that, but I feel like at that point it was probably already iconic. I don't know. Tell us, listeners, you're that's listening it. in the future and know what the trailer is. <laughs> so, Scream 2. Scream 2. 1997. Mm-hmm. What was I doing maybe. in 97? <laughs> well, the pain is you probably but maybe you didn't see this i did did not see this in 97 when did you first see it i actually so and i I talked i think about i talked about this a little bit when we did regular scream is like i off and on like was aware of scream like when it came out like you know because i had like the ghost face costume in elementary school when we had like Halloween day or whatever, having no idea like what it would just like, I knew I was like, yeah, I see this guy like on TV all the time and people are talking about this, you know, the the, the Grim Reaper guy. Like, I didn't know I was like a child. Grandfather um, death. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, uh, so when I like started to be actually become conscious of it though, like I kept um, confusing Scream with Scary Movie, which of course is, you know, what scary movie wanted me to do um and was the whole point um so i didn't actually sit down and watch it until you showed me scream 2 
um, and actually like put together the pieces and understood everything. And we actually watched all all four screams that mm -hmm. day. Um, but yeah, I'd say that was where I was at. In 1997, I might have been wearing the scream, the the ghost face costume at that point in elementary school. I would have been like six. So actually, it was probably 98 um, that I uh, I had the one where you put you you press the button and it would like go That's, blood. That was the coolest one. I yeah. always say I always wanted that one. Yeah, that's the one I had. That one is sick. <laughs> yeah. What about you? Where where does your Scream 2 journey begin? Yeah, I mean, I also was too young at the time. I was seven when this movie came out. Aware of it culturally, of course. Um, but it, it definitely didn't come till later. I don't have a concrete memory of the first time I saw Scream 2. I think it was probably, you know, what we talk about a lot. It was probably piecemeal until I caught it on cable or something, or maybe convinced my parents that I was old enough for us to rent it from Blockbuster. I re I, I don't remember, unfortunately. Um, what I do remember though, from the cultural sense of Scream 2 is what essentially the opening sequence of this movie predicted. Mm -hmm. and I remember seeing like, news reports of people lined up around the block to go see Scream 2 because the hype and the anticipation was so high and there were all these kinds of gimmicks and there were safety concerns and people you know there was like a moral mm -hmm. panic sort of but not really kind of thing like yeah. I remember of the vague awareness of that seeing like the news yeah the, the people for, lined up yeah, and that it was for a scary movie and you know what however you interpret that at seven where like you kind of think it's real and right yeah so i i do have that memory which i think is interesting given how this film begins right yeah no that is interesting yeah because i don't it's definitely one of those things where like i don't have a any memory of like the cultural like place of scream at the time even though like i was very aware of like ghostface in particular and knowing like oh yeah there's like this guy <laughs> and that's what he looks like <laughs> it like literally is like what it is in my brain i was like there this guy exists and like that's my knowledge of it for so long um but um that's interesting because like i feel like i could picture what those news reports probably look like right right but, um so i think my sister my sister definitely saw scream in theaters and stuff um she might have even had like a copy of it on vhs because i remember she also had silence of the lambs and that was my first interaction with silence of the lambs is because yeah. she had the vhs in her room and i remember i would always go in her room and stare at the vhs because of how like crazy the cover was <laughs> um but yeah 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 so i feel like our experiences are somewhat similar to a point um and then when you did finally see scream 2 when we did that marathon what were your impressions i mean i've always like in my mind juggled whether i like scream or scream 2 more which it, i think is actually a pretty common um you know 
feeling about the first two films. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it was like, yeah, because it was like, you know, and we'll talk about this a bit as we start to get into the, especially around legacy, legacy, what is the legacy? But um, the the way that it did a sequel um, was like something that like, looking now I can see like, okay, like where it had influenced other things. And like, to me, it was like, oh yeah, okay. Like kind of like the first time I watched Buffy where you see how different TV, like the, how different like cultural and, and thematic things and media get pulled from things. Like, you know, the first time I watched like the musical episode of Buffy and it was like, oh, like this is the first time anyone did this. So like, this is what it looks like. And like, that's how kind of like it felt after watching Scream 2 is like, oh, so this is the first time that people really like, that somebody really did a horror sequel this way or really tried with, with what they were going for. And it was, you know, it's interesting because like I said, I watched all these movies yesterday and it's wild to think that this has been going on for 20 plus years and it's the same story, the same continuous thread, which is, but, um, you, you know, that. unheard of in, in, in horror. Unheard of, unheard of. And we talked about, about this a little bit in our episode last year on the original. Like, mm-hmm. it's the same timeline, it's the same characters, it's the same world. And I think that's part of its appeal. Because they, the ways that they have found to make the story continue are always fresh and always relevant. And, like, obviously, yeah, you have to, you, we're, we are suspending our disbelief. But there's enough buy-in that it just works. <laughs> it's interesting you say that because what was I listening? Oh, I was listening to this podcast about um, like weirdly about folklore and urban legends, and this person who is like referring to that phrase "suspension of disbelief," where she was like, um, "I'm of the opposite mind," where she's like, "We go into these things wanting to believe, and like you know, you have to be taken out of it. Like something eventually happens that kind of knocks you out of it, and you're like, oh, and I feel like." With the exception of like, you know, and we'll get to this when we do Scream 3 for Scream 7, but like, you know, that's maybe the one like sort of road bump in in the story. But um, like just looking at how like the consequences stack and build and the way even that like little details make it across, like the fact that uh, Sydney in Scream 3 is still wearing the the fraternity necklace from Scream 2 She's got a poster in her house at one point from the Cassandra plan yeah. <laughs> she does. Dewey has Tatum's ashes in his apartment, um, which yeah. is the only acknowledgement anyone ever has that Tatum died, by yeah. the way. Got mentioned once in Scream 2. Yeah. But, um, you know, just, like, the way that, like, the... the um, the commitment to like the story and the fact that it is a single universe and it's ongoing. And I was thinking yesterday, like I had this sort of like theory that at this point, scream itself has become almost a subgenre in and of itself, mm-hmm. like a scream movie. Like you go into them and you're like, okay, like the opening, like somebody's going to get like mm-hmm. fucking brutalized, like in the cold open, probably from answering a phone call there's going to be a character who's our like genre expert who's going to tell everyone they're stupid there's going to be a love interest who is either a red herring or the killer 
in some capacity like you know there are these elements that you know at this point and you're you like engage with and it's aware that you know them so right. then it's like oh you think it's this it's actually this like you know in scream five if we i don't know if we call it that because it's just scream but the fifth no one, one knows what to do everyone is always like do we just say scream do we say scream five do we say scream 2022 do we say five cream Remember <laughs> how they like, stylized it that way? Yeah, I kind of like five cream. Um, <laughs> in that one, like the fact that you know, the, the for the first time somebody survived the opening. Um, right, that threw us all for a loop. Yeah, that was like a big, a big change. So, like, you know, and I feel like that all starts here with Scream Two, where they were like, "All right, like we're doing this, and we are committing full throttle. Like, there's not going to be any of this crap where like." we're recasting characters right. or we're just, you know, using the IP with a completely different unrelated story with the exception of like the TV show, but like we're, we're doing it. Um, and I mean, we're all still here. So. We're all still here. We're, we are, I am pumped for Scream 6. I know I brought it up today at work when I was reminding people that I was going to be out on Friday, Monday, and I was like, yeah, we've got our Oscars party and also I'm seeing Scream on Friday. <laughs> I should have put that in my PTO request. So, Scream. But um, yeah, and I think, and I also think you brought up a good point about, um, like yeah, it all it all started here with Scream Two and um, or what did you mention something about that made me think of just how like, um, you know, we talked a lot about how Scream spawned a lot of imitation films mm -hmm. and like sort of a new um, wave of slashers in the late mm -hmm. '90s and early 2000s, and how quickly people like got oversaturated with that. But what we have mm -hmm. to remember is that hadn't started. So by the time Scream 2 rolls around, like that fatigue isn't there. And yeah. so this it's still so fresh. And like that hype that I remembered was like so high when this movie comes out. And this movie, like, it knows that. It knew mm -hmm. that there was going to be that, but without truly possibly being able to know that. Like, right. No, a, a lot of them have been very good at predicting. Um, yes different. like even like scream four like really nailing the social media like and like the lengths gen z would eventually would become gen z um i don't think they were known as gen z at that point um when the movie came out but the lengths they would go to for like social media clout and, right and that sort of thing and um yeah yeah i mean and it and it starts here because like this is where they decide okay what do we want this to be like scream comes out and that's one thing but it's like okay it's a sequel and you've got a sort of choose your own adventure of how you want to approach this based on like you know every slasher sequel that that came before and they like you know we're like eh, no we're committing to you know the the thesis of the original and it's like now we're doing a sequel so yeah. what's what does that look like um yeah, they really nailed it. And you mentioned the, you know, sort of the, um, almost like the the tradition or the expectation of the um, the brutality of the cold open, mm -hmm. and how the cold opens of Scream have almost become sort of like short films within the larger films. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, also gets really started here because Scream Two mm -hmm. has a cold open like the first one. 
Yeah. How do you, um, how do you feel that this particular cold open works or how do you feel that it has aged? This is one that like a lot of people continue to talk about in a lot of different ways. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, first of all, it's definitely, I think in the tops, if not the top, like in terms of like the most graphic brutal kill in the entire series. Um, You know, it's the one that I definitely think about the most and you know, that was on purpose. Um, You know, I have a note down here um, that, Jada, at the time she was just Jada Pinkett, but Jada Pinkett's Smith um, actually requested that it be like over the top, like gory because she wanted it to be memorable. Um, and then as a sort of thank you, sent Wes Craven steak knives for Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and it is, and she like really was like, this is, I'm going to like, ham this up like this is going to be the the most dramatic um you know death scene one can when can conceive of and it definitely is like you know it's something where like in the wrong hands it would be just too on the nose and it almost is too on the nose but it's like on this u-curve of being so on the nose in a film that like that's the point like that it works you know what i mean like it's it's the right amount of earnest, which is like almost too earnest, yeah. but it, but it all works. And you know what it's sort of, you know, um, you know, I actually like to think about it in the sort of like today times, maybe we're on the sort of tail end of it, but like the obsession with true crime and true crime is entertainment, um, which is something that this film predicts and that, you know, like the whole crux of it is that, you know, Mickey wants to become like, you know, famous from his trial and like the documentaries people will make about him and that sort of thing, which is in of itself like related to like the frenzy around the OJ trial and that sort of thing. Right. But like the way she just sort of like is on the, you know, the screens playing on her, you know, she's up there bleeding and she sort of does this like Christ figure like pose before she she collapses and everyone's sort of watching and they're not sure if it's real or not. Right. Um, you know, is very much like, you know, a, a commentary on like the true crime is entertainment. Like the people who, who like, I remember when making a murderer came out and people were watching it and people would say, don't spoil me. I haven't finished it yet. And it's like, it was history. It happened. Like it actually happened. Like you can't spoil history, but like treating it as some, as like binge worthy and like, oh yeah, we want to know. And everyone had these opinions and would talk about it as if these were characters and not like real people. Um, and obviously this is talking more in the context of like you know film itself and like seeing simulated violence and the fact that you know when you go to a horror movie especially a slasher like you go to see simulated violence to see the kills i mean especially with like saw right on the horizon after this movie and like that's all about watching the most like insane ways people could you know be tortured to death essentially um and it's just interesting to think about. Um, and it's also interesting to think about in the context of um, the, the like Cassandra theme that also is later presented and how this woman's literally dying in front of people and they're looking at her and not doing anything and not really sure if it's real or not. And um, Well, and the idea of um, being cursed, being fated, mm-hmm. 
you know, in the Cassandra story, which Sydney struggles with so much throughout this film. And honestly, like, which the film, like, in a very dark way, kind of almost leads her to believe that, yeah, she is. Um, yeah. Everything she fears most happens in this film. Her, she loses her best friend and her boyfriend and, you know, it, yeah, it's dark shit. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then I think with the opening, you also have the element of, um, and the commentary on the black people always dying first. Right. The movies is going on here. You've got the uh, the big one of, the, you know, a pop culture big name star is offed brutally in the beginning, mm-hmm. once again mimicking uh, Drew Mary Drew Barrymore's kill in the original film, and it's just I think. I know that the opening to four has skyrocketed to a lot of people's. <laughs> opening to four was such a trip. Yeah. But I think this is, I think this is like, I don't know. This is yeah, a- no, and this is all honestly the one too where like, you know, every time I watch it, I'm like, maybe this time. <laughs> like, right. she'll get away. It won't happen. Like, you know, obviously with the Drew Barrymore kill, like that's very tragic and it, and it's, you know, iconic and that sort of thing. But this is the one where I'm always like, oh, man. all right, yeah. we got to get through this, this, these first 10 minutes because they're like the roughest part of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in its own way has become really iconic. Um, and unfortunately was in terms of things it predicted and was a precursor to, uh, violence in movie theaters. Mm-hmm. These types of premieres, a tr- true midnight premieres, don't really exist anymore. Uh, mm-hmm. the, it, Thursday night screenings start at like eight o'clock, mm-hmm. uh, and you definitely cannot bring in a mask yeah. or no masks, day. costumes, fake weapons. Yeah, yeah, and you know who knows whether or not the movie was essentially, you know, kind of actively predicting that that would all go away or not, but it's interesting to think about. Yeah. And it was, you know, and it was a sort of like right before the, the climax of the moral panic around violence in media mm-hmm. um, that would sort of like become the conversation piece around the Columbine shooting um, which happened, I believe, two years after this movie came out. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, it was not the first time, you know, it was surely not the first time people talked about, like, violence in media, you know, affecting kids. It was just, you know, now the the event that we all think of when we talk about, um, right. you know, life imitating art in a sort of violent way. Mm-hmm. Which is what Scream is all about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, it uh big opening. <laughs> yeah. Very, very, you know, and then it, you know, cuts that, you know, scream too. Um and we're in Ohio <laughs> at that point. Well, technically we're in Georgia. But well extensively we're in Ohio. Right. Uh, at Windsor world. College. At Windsor College. Uh, where Sydney is studying theater, question mark? I don't know. It's never clear to me if she's actually studying theater or if she's just, like, into college. Yeah, they don't stuff. 
I don't think it's clarified what her major is, but she has never that I know of expressed an interest in theater before this movie. Right. It was like, oh, was Sydney a theater kid in high school? Or yeah, I guess we didn't see a ton of her uh her interests in high school because she was getting chased around most of the time we saw her. Didn't have time for extracurriculars. Right. Um, and maybe the suggestion is that she's using theater as a way to process what happened in the yeah, which which definitely comes through in the the scene um you know the cassandra scene, scene which i think is kind of like a another like famous scene from this movie where she gets into costume very quickly um mm-hmm. and uh, acts out um i think it's the fall of troy is the name of the yeah. play but I can't remember if it's called them. Guns or man, have I committed? <laughs> yes, she does her little monologue as a treat. Um, and you know, it's a great, you know, it's a good, it's like a great scene. And you know, Danny Elfman scored the yes. the song for that Cassandra aria, which has its own reprise during the climax of the movie. So like we're coming full circle with the theme. Um, you know, we're basically. Uh, Sid is trying to like process her trauma through theater and through this character who is, um, you know, this this great one of the great tragic figures of literature, um, but um, a Cirrus who is cursed to have visions but never be believed. Um, and when her visions come to pass and these horrible things that she said would happen happen, people blamed her um, and sort of hunted her down as. Um, uh, the cause of them, which is interesting because you kind of get a a, a play on that in Scream 4 uh, when they refer to her, Jill calls her the angel of death. Right. Um, because, you know, she just, she's always around when these things happen. Um, but and yeah, it's, no, it's a, it's a powerful scene. Yeah. And it's what Sydney fears most, right? That she is the one responsible mm-hmm. and that it is her fault. Um, and she's trying to reckon with that. Um, and the, the Scream 2 was such an interesting moment, I think, in Sydney's arc um, for many reasons. Lots of what you were just talking about, of course. But also, like, she begins the movie processing the original film, of course, but also, like, seemingly well-adjusted. She She has a group of friends She's got a new best friend. That probably was a big part of it. Yeah, she's like figured out how to handle these nut jobs. She's like not really phased by it. She's got a, a boyfriend. Mm-hmm. Um, she's, she seems to be doing well. But then by the end of the film, you know, the last image when we're pulling away, Sydney is alone again. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, when we get to Scream, Scream 3, it's almost like a regression because she's become a recluse. She's not really living her life at all. She's in hiding. Um, so I think it's just interesting to see this moment in Sydney's arc and what the events of this movie do to her in preparation for sort of like the final push as it were in Scream 3. Right, because, you know, in Scream 1, Scream 1, in Scream, you know, like it was very personal. You know, Billy had his crazy you know reasons for doing what he was doing and Stu, you know along for the ride evidently (laughs) Um, 
but you know, like it was a very personal situation where it was like, okay, I can see how we got to this point. Like it's nuts, but I can see how we got to this point. In in this movie, like we establish, okay, anyone can be Ghostface. Different people will put on the mask and sort of become this character. And for whatever reason, it will always revolve around Sydney. And Sydney will be the target. And and people, you know, she's sort of a focal point for these people. Um, and it only grows and grows as like this stuff keeps happening. Um, and you know, it's interesting because how you say, like, you know, like this was almost it seems like a fork in the road where like it could have gone differently, but it's just because of the way things happened here and that it's like, you know, it's established that Sydney will always be the victim, quote unquote, always be the person that somebody's coming after. Um, you know, fate's vengeful eye is fixed on me, as she says. Um, you know, that's established here and it sort of like changes the trajectory of, of, you know, the series, obviously, because, you know, it's setting up for, for more films, but, um, you know, just who Sydney is and how she sort of develops as a character, which is another nuts thing about this as a horror sequel is like, it's, it's developing characters as opposed to just, you know, like, just it, like the, in, um, you know, Friday the 13th part two, we just dispatch with, you know the 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 leftovers from the first movie you know in this one it's like okay we're going to stick with sydney and we're going to you know have her deal with consequences from the previous film and have new consequences and have like character development and sort of grow from you know not helpless victim but definitely like besieged victim to like jaded survivor right um and it's interesting it's very interesting. And not only does the film make the decision that we are going to stick with Sydney, we also stick with Gail and and Randy. I, you know, I was thinking too, again, watching all these movies in that, like, you can really tell like the time period based on Gail's hair. Absolutely. Like what was going on at different, it's like, oh, yep, it's okay. It's, Red we're, we're in the oh. microbangs phase. Yeah. <laughs> Not yet. Oh, oh man. man. But we're coming to it. Um, the millennium the, bangs. <laughs> Everyone just, you know, when Y2K didn't happen, they were like, well, we got to live our lives to the fullest. And that involves doing crazy that was the decision that was made. Yeah. Um, of all of Gail's particular hair, especially in the first three films, this works the best i would say yeah i mean it's just in certain light that you really see the yeah streaks yeah um, but i but i think this is a great moment in gail's arc too um mm-hmm. i think like she gets a lot more room to develop um obviously her relationship with dewey becomes really key i love you know that at the end of this movie she um turns away from Joel and goes to Dewey as mm-hmm. like the inverse of the end of the first film where she goes straight to the camera to start reporting. Right. It's like, hey, that's growth. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, and one of the things I love about watching this series progress yeah. is the relationship between Sydney and Gail and like how it evolves from Sydney like constantly punching her to yeah. <laughs> 
you know, they see each other, you know, and they hug and they have each other on speed dial. And, you know, like Sydney comforts her when Dewey is killed in, in the fifth one and they're together in the finale in the fifth one, um, you know, tag teaming once again, kind of, you know, like how they were forced to do in the first two, they sort of like, you know, were together by chance and, you know, that they were like fighting together. And now it's like they rolled up together and they both, <laughs> you know, and what's her face comes out and they're like, what do you think? Trap, definitely trap. And like, yep. <laughs> like yeah. you know, it's, it's fun to watch, to watch their growth as um, yeah. characters together. It is, it really is. And I think this, this movie is that like extra fun part of, of the development because it's like, grudging respect mm -hmm. but they're definitely not like close by any means but you know it, it it's it's there's a a trauma bond as it were between the four of them at this mm -hmm. point and they that's that's undeniable it doesn't make them at this point like family but you know it's it's fun it's you yeah know. No, it definitely is. And I mean, even with Randy, too, like, you know, Randy has a relationship with Gail and with Dewey because of the events that happened. And like, you know, he's with Gail and Dewey when he ultimately is, um, you know, attacked and killed. And, you know, it affects them pretty, pretty deeply. And, you know, it's just it's fun to watch this sort of like, you know, enemies to friends to, you know, basically found a family. Um, at, at different points and you know and it takes a while for it too because even you know i don't think gail and sydney had truly have like a a compassionate relationship until the the third the end of the third one even right um you know and it's it's fun to to watch that growth yeah definitely you mentioned randy um obviously his death is huge Mm -hmm. um and a huge moment and turning point for the series and for the sequel um for me i used to be really upset that randy was killed mm -hmm. too now i think it's absolutely brilliant and totally the right choice because they were taking the chance with this sequel and trying to prove that scream was going to be something and that it was going to be unique and unexpected every time what did you have to do? Kill one of the four of them. Yeah. And it works. It really, really works, not just for Scream 2, but long-term, because we know that not everybody is safe. Right. And then in the world of this movie, it's super effective because when Dewey is attacked in the sound booth, we think he's dead. Mm -hmm. Because they're like, well, they killed Randy. Why wouldn't they kill Dewey? Yeah. And of course, we get sort of like the scream tradition of Dewey always getting. Yeah, like, that was going to say that was another one. It's like, oh, yep, Dewey's going to get some sort of like insane wound that he's going to just recover yeah. from until he doesn't. But um, um, but yeah, I mean, what did what did you what did you or what do you make of Randy's death? And I mean, I remember watching it the first time and actually also being very upset that Randy died. Because I was like, I loved Randy's character. I kind of was rooting for him to eventually get with Sydney. Like, come on. I'm upset about that. <laughs> yeah. Which, you know, he in the original script for Scream 1, they were supposed to end up together um, at the end. Um, but they obviously didn't do that. Um, but, um, 
Yeah, like I was, because it happened so abruptly, and you're like, well, surely he can't truly be dead, but, you know, and he is, obviously. Um, and I, I do know that, like, you know, looking at sort of retroactively looking at, re you know, reviews and contemporary responses, like, people were actually very upset that Randy um, was killed, and that was, like, one of the main, like, of the few negative things people had to say about the movie, like, that was one of them, was a few people felt that that was a mistake because his character was so popular. And on the one hand, like, you can see, like, the point that they're making because since they've done that they've had to replace randy in different ways in every single movie right. by either having him appear post-mortem in like a, a a you know open this if i'm dead type deal that's the weakest way that it happens yeah um they and then they have characters who you know say like oh yeah like i'm this generation's randy you know like there's the characters who sort of take up the mantle now we obviously have his niece and nephew, his niece more than his nephew, sort of taking on that role as um, the genre aware movie buff um, friend and, and being Randy. And there's that nice picture of Randy on the mantle on the like um, yep. the uh, the the memorial or whatever, but or the shrine more like. But um, so it is, you know, you can see from a logistical standpoint, like, yeah, it's tough for them to take Randy out of the movie because it did cause them to have to, like, find ways to replace what he logistically brought to the plot. Um, right. I, but yeah, like, it makes sense because, like, the whole point of these movies is, like, yeah, obviously, I say obviously, but I was like, I have no freaking clue. Sydney probably survives like all the movies, you know? Like, who knows? Assuming <laughs> they get Neve Campbell back at some point, if they do, I don't know. Um, if I find out that they've just written her off as having died off screen, I'm going to be pissed. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, like, she's the only person who, like, we're, like, 96% sure she'll probably survive through the end. And, like, a big part of that is because, like, yeah, like, Randy seemed like such, like, a, oh, yeah, this guy's going to be in the next six movies, and he gets killed halfway through, like, an hour into the second one. Um, and, you know, I'm a big proponent for, you know, having, not having sort of plot, or obvious plot armor on um, characters. Um, and, yeah, I think Randy's death definitely serves to, like, unsettle and, like, raise the stakes because... Um, you know, if, if Randy can die, then anyone can die. And now do and now that Dewey has been killed, I'm like, if Gail bites it in this movie, I'm gonna... I know some people think it might be like what they did with um the Star Wars sequel trilogy. Mm -hmm. And then like where they slowly pick off the uh the originals. Pick off the originals and which if that's the case and Neve Campbell said no, you have to pay me. You know what first of all you should pay her whatever she wants right. but um you know if it's like okay if you're gonna kill my character off you have to pay me like insane that, amounts of money and that is the one thing i think should never happen yeah. i think it, just because of what sydney has become and what she means as you know the survivor the one who lives through trauma and it doesn't let it define you and i don't think sydney should ever be killed no. it's, it's we're it, it's 20 
81 post-apocalypse like the nukes have like destroyed civilization and it's sydney getting chased by ghost face (laughs) through like the mad max desert and that and that's just what it that's the way the world works yeah and suddenly it almost becomes like the dark tower yeah (laughs) but it's fine but it's fine that's what it is and what happens in that wasteland Sydney kills Ghostface. She yeah. doesn't die. <laughs> she doesn't die. She continues about her journey to the the green place, yeah. and you know, and that's yeah. the yeah, like that's you know, like write her out, you know, have her doing whatever it is she's doing. It's gonna be tough to watch a screen movie uh, without her when there's always the specter of her. Um, you know, and I'll be interested to see how they tie it in because I, you know, I don't think you can have a ghost face who just completely ignores the existence of, who is not like immediately sort of magnetized to, to Sydney because they exist, you know, like in a, in, in tandem. You can't have a ghost face without a Sydney. It's, it's going to be interesting because, you know, in, in the fifth movie, like, it's not necessarily about her that time. When she's there, that sort of, like you said, yeah, she draws their attention. Draws their attention for obvious reasons. But those, that set of killers in five, their plan doesn't initially revolve around her. Right. So I'm wondering. Yeah, like her showing up is like is almost a an incidental, and they're like, right. yeah. oh fuck yeah, yeah. They're like, well, we had to bring the legacy characters, we had to draw them back, and we had to show this, you know, whatever. So it's like, okay, she was part of the plan, but she wasn't the central part of the plan, and right. that I think is bringing us into interesting territory. Yeah, which you know, you know, you want to continue that theme? That's great. That works for me. But um, you know, yeah, there has to be. A good amount of, of explanation as to where the hell is it? she's on vacation right yeah you just you gotta respect it's like gail mm-hmm. says in the fifth one she's mm-hmm. like hey new girl you know how it always goes back to the original this yeah. is the original. <laughs> i did really having rewatched that for the first time in a while yesterday really be like oh, you know what that was a good line <laughs> that is hey a good new girl <laughs> <laughs> And there's and there's a lot of good lines in Scream too. I am particularly partial to, yeah. Well, you're forgetting one thing about Billy Loomis. What? I fucking killed him. Yeah. No, there's some really good. I mean, Sydney's got some zingers. Just you know, what does she do all day besides you know screen her calls and think about the next you know try to go to class, try to go to class and think about what sassy things she's going to say to the next person who like tries to murder her um but yes that one is always very good when she's like fucking killed him um and then obviously the entire cassandra monologue oh is just what a swing as a scene to be like we're gonna have this incredibly earnest extremely dramatic uh classical theater um And then I love that, like... Everyone, like, thinks she's, like, fucking batshit. Everyone is so shocked that the girl whose trauma has just been put on the big screen Mm -hmm. in the movie and 
you know, where, where is being targeted again, where there have been murders on their campus. Everyone is shocked that she freaks out from the simulated stabbing. Of her. <laughs> they all look at her like she's in the wrong about but that. She's the problem. The only people who respond correctly are her two bodyguards. Yes. Who, like come running up and they're like, what is it? Like what? Yeah. What happened? What's going on? And everyone else is like, what the fuck is Everyone else is like, huh? <laughs> what a weirdo. It's like, offended. Oh. <laughs> she would think that they were actually like posing a threat to her. Yeah. Which I also think about in the film scene where Randy's like, hi, I live this. Like when people are just talking about the movie and Randy is like, hello, I'm also here. Yeah. <laughs> like, it takes a while for him to swing into that scene as they're debating the merits of like the stab movie. He's like, um. <laughs> and like when he says that, like nobody reacts. They just keep, they just talk, like, okay, whatever, moving on. Yeah. Uh, this is my favorite sequel. <laughs> like, yeah. Like they pay no mind to the fact that like Randy's a character in these movies. Right, right. Um, but he always found bizarre of that class, you know. Yeah, and like we see, like you know, we do see, like obviously in later movies, as we get more bits and pieces of the stab films, like yeah, it's it's Randy, like it's like down to down to a the, to a T. Yeah, it's like you know, it's not even just bit, you know, like oh yeah, that that Jeff character was based on me. Like right. I don't know, I find that bizarre. That like there's some like um like earlier in the semester scene where they all have to like maybe get it out of their systems and they're used to randy bringing up that he's in the stab movies or something but i always thought it was funny that they're just like, like yeah, yeah was, like, oh whatever my father was darth vader like ooh, like what? Right. <laughs> um but i always found that funny that you know people are just chill with that with that um, yeah tori spelling as sydney <laughs> Yeah. Her worst nightmare. That is one of the best payoffs to a joke ever. <laughs> when we see. Stick with us. A year from now, it's going to really. That it actually is Tori Spelling playing Sydney <laughs> in staff. And they like make a comment about how she didn't want to come back for like the sequels <laughs> in Scream 3. It's so they had to that's what, and that's what I'm saying. This movie has airtight continuity. Oh man, it's on it. They pay, they pay off uh, Robert Rodriguez later. Yeah, Robert Rodriguez <laughs> is, is is the director of, of okay. stab movies because he directed the stab sequences in Actually, yes. it's just like, in this movie. Um, it's yeah. nuts. I don't do. It's it's like an it's a glass onion is what it is that it is that it is um well let's talk i guess a bit more about the production of this movie and all of the things that sort of paid off sure. um, you know we know that obviously um they kept it simple in the end and just called it scream 2 yes but there were some <laughs> other contenders in there mm -hmm. <laughs> um including scream again scream louder and scream the sequel which are very cutesy and i, I could have seen the temptation but it i don't know how you scale that though because they clearly wanted more than just one sequel and exactly. it's like okay like what's scream the third you know the trilogy you know like what 
you know. And so I think this was the right call. Aside from last year's film, they've all had the number. Uh, this year's is doing the interesting thing of switching to Roman numerals. Um, the fuck ever. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it works. And um, you you found a really interesting note of something that I found this. Yes, during- I found this hilarious. So once Scream itself was released, somebody bought the domain Scream Two because this was around the time that people were like fucking around and doing that. You know, like people would buy Coca-Cola.com and then charge Coca-Cola like exorbitant amounts to get it back. And this person bought Scream 2 and didn't do anything with it and refused to sell it to Dimension because they didn't like the first movie. <laughs> so I don't know what the website, like what they ended up having to do, but they could not get Scream2.com. I can't. <laughs> I, I don't know if this person still has it. Like, I was I, just about I, to say, did you check? Has it since been I, relinquished? I did not. Let me see what it looks like right now. Let's see what we got here. Nope, somebody has Scream 2 and they're using it as a appliance repair. Um domain. It's a it's scream2.com, but it's for appliance re- reliable appliance repair. The best in Aurora, Colorado, evidently. Absolutely amazing. So don't know what that's about, but um but, yeah, to scream2.com. That's scream2.com. Oh man. This is hilarious. This website sucks. Probably hasn't been updated since 1987. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, that's where that's sitting. But originally, yes, uh, Dimension was unable to acquire scream2.com and apparently still is unable to, unless they are the owners of this appliance company in Colorado. <laughs> Maybe. Inception. Uh, so, all right. So, so two five-page treatments for um, sequels were written alongside the script for the original, um, and the direct sequel, what ended up being this movie, was meant to focus on Sydney going to college and getting harassed by a copycat killer. Um, so Kevin Williamson started working on that, I think like immediately once Scream was released because it was clear mm-hmm. that it was a success. And so by the time the sequel was officially greenlit, he had 42 pages of the script complete. Mm-hmm. However, mm-hmm. Um, famously, and I honestly wonder if this is like one of the first times that this happened. Um, the first, I do. Yeah. yeah. Um, but basically, something we're all familiar with now, the shooting script, once it was completed and transferred for production, got leaked onto the internet. Um, you know, hot ticket film, you know, the internet's a new, you know, wild west out there. And, you know, everyone finds out, um, you know, what the, the, the broad strokes of the film are. Um, the original intention was Haley, Sydney's roommate, um, and Derek, Sydney's boyfriend, were kind of in a Bonnie and Clyde situation as Ghostface. Um, when this was leaked, they decided they had to change it, though obviously this like um, couples as Ghostface um, motif would be used in later films. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but um, a lot of other things that have been changed too. Joel and Randy had different roles. It's possible Randy didn't die in this original, and part of the reason he was killed was because of the script leak. He was right. killed. He was he was punished <laughs> for the script leak. I phrase that in such a way like he like personally was responsible. Um, uh, and you know there was a lot of rewrites that were pretty much on the fly. And like some of them happened day of filming um, and they weren't super complete scenes a lot of the time. Like there was one sequence that just said like in the in the description text, like Wes will make it scary. Um, yeah. And Wes Craven would have to fill out the meat of scenes, you know, sort of like block and choreograph them as they were filming them or come up with the dialogue um, mm -hmm. as it was happening. So, you know, it, it was, I imagine a little chaotic. It was a little chaotic, yeah. And like they it's it's amazing that they got this movie together in the time that they did and released it a year after the original. It was like less than a week after. It was less than a week. Yeah. It was less than a year. Right. It by beat the year mark by like a week. Um it was a quick turnaround. <laughs> quick turnaround um but for all of that with the writing like it's it's really solid um and there's a lot of intentional mimicking in the writing of scream 2 um you know sydney has a new friend group she has another a new best friend who gets killed she has a boyfriend she's suspicious of lots of things mm -hmm. like that the uh the quick kills of both Sarah Michelle Geller and Jada Pinkett, now Jada Pinkett Smith, um, they are mirrors for Drew Barrymore's shocking death in the original, meant to unsettle the viewer. Any character, no matter how famous the actor, could be killed at any time. I think more so specifically, Jada Pinkett was the big like, mm -hmm. one. Um, Sarah Michelle Geller, I believe, had just finished filming the first season of Buffy when mm -hmm. this. To production and yeah. just before that she was like a daytime tv yeah opera person so like was just about to like absolutely explode yeah. uh and then plus uh i know what you did last summer yes which wrapped <clears throat> or was wrapping as she was filming this i think it overlapped a little bit yeah it's just like insane when you think about it um that her character Cece was originally written to be part of the group of sorority sisters that try to recruit Sydney. Hi. Hi. No, I really mean that. Hi. <laughs> um, okay. Poor in the various rewrites, uh, the character was changed so that she was a film student and that she was in Randy's class, um, and so that she could be a part of that scene where you know they talk about sequels and whatnot. What do you think of Cece as almost like a proto Kirby type character? I 100% think that is the case. Yeah. Um, I think Kevin Williamson probably had a vague idea about a character like that. And this was testing the waters. Yeah. Cause they give like to like sort of break her out the way that they did and giving her like the scenes that they gave her. Like she's only in two sequences really, which is the, the film class and then her death scene but like they're very meaty scenes and i'm sure part of that is because like yeah it's sarah michelle geller and like she is about to like you know explode as a 
presence in pop culture and also like is a good actress um but i wonder if they're you know like testing the waters with this um almost like female randy type character right um she can throw it back you know to the boys she's got the knowledge she's cool she's confident you know mm-hmm. you got a hard on for cameron <laughs> yeah i think i i would definitely agree with that take And then it's interesting what you were saying about the ending where she sort of where it zooms out and she's alone, um, which is even funnier to think about with like the song that's playing during that time. Yeah, it's way too upbeat for what it's very been. upbeat. They actually wanted um, "Bittersweet Symphony" by The Verve because the nineties um, could not get it. Well, could get it. It just was too expensive because it samples a Rolling Stone song within it. So like to license it is very expensive so like no thanks so they went with she said by um somebody um, by, by, it is by collective soul yeah um but they had them like sort of rework the instrumentation to make it sound a little bit like bittersweet symphony like to because they really like the cello bits specifically but mm-hmm. anyway um, in that shot where they're zooming out, it was the original intention was to zoom out until you saw that like a third ghost face was watching Sydney from a bell tower, which would be a lead into Scream 3, but they obviously did not do that, which I agree with. That would be kind of like hokey. Yeah, I think that was the right call. I, like I it sounds I... cool on paper and then you think about it for more than two seconds and you're like, actually, yeah, that's, that wouldn't. This is probably, probably smart. Probably yeah. Smart. Uh, so as we talked about in our episode from last year on the original, uh, Scream was a massive financial and critical success um, uh, in big part because of uh, Drew Barrymore's involvement and of course, you know, because of just the film being what it was. Um, but because it was so successful and because Drew Barrymore was involved, uh, it made it a lot easier for production to attract known talent to the sequel. Uh, Sarah Michelle Gellar, Jada Pinkett, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Michelle Gellar actually took on the role without even reading the script because she just wanted to be a part of the sequel um, based on the success of the first film. Um, Natasha Gregson Wagner, who a lot of people know from Lost Highway and Urban Legend, and Paula Marshall, um, who's in Hellraiser 3, Veronica Mars, Malignant. They both auditioned for unspecified roles in the film, and Liv Tyler was actually considered for Maureen, the character that was played by Jada Pinkett. And She's actually pretty good in the leftovers. And I still I I, I guess I don't mean actually because I really loved her in the strangers. Like she is a good actress. I love her. Yeah, um good. it's just funny to think about her in a role yeah. like that at that time in her career. Well, and I think because of how the scene has come to be, it's extra hard because mm-hmm. you know, there's the com there's like the racial commentary in there, you right. know. And obviously that wouldn't have been able to play if Liv Tyler had been there. Um, yeah. So 
it, it's hard to picture. I'm sure she would have been great, but it works as. Yeah. as I would have liked to see Liv Tyler in some capacity in a Scream movie, though, in the 90s. Maybe there's room for her in Scream 7. Maybe. Excuse me. You are excused. Um, yeah, so the audition scenes for actors going out for Derek, mm. they had to sing. Um, oh. I think I love you. That's part of that was part of their auditions. Um, and that Jerry O'Connell's performance of it is ultimately what got him the role. But another actor who was considered um, was. Eric Mabius, who people will know from Cruel Intentions, The L World, and probably most, not most famously, but probably Ugly Betty, I think is where a lot of people at yeah. this point know him from. Um, but I think it would be funny to see the audition tapes of, um, you know, how different people approach that scene. I would love to see that. The, the Derek character is interesting because he is what billy is described as in the original scream uh shooting script right um, or like football-y job yeah i'm not sure if like the presence of skeet ulrich changed the character or like they decided to go in a different direction with him because he can play that type of character because we've seen it in the craft um, um so i don't know if they casted him and then you know like what happened there but obviously they changed him to more of like a a bad boy type character more obviously potentially um you know the villain um but he's described in the script as being you know handsome class president type um obviously not who we ultimately see on screen in the first one but a lot of that those traits got transferred over to derek um who was originally supposed to be the killer in this movie um and obviously did not end up being the killer so it's an interesting interplay. It is. Um, the Derek the character is very tragic, ultimately. Mm -hmm. uh, and just so sort of like lovingly loyal to Sydney um, and really like tender towards her. And it makes his fate really hard. Um, and like you mentioned earlier that like, detail that's not like given specific attention in scream three but just you know that she still has the the letters that he gives her mm -hmm. in the scream um like analysis collection of essays that you got me um quite a few years ago now at this point i guess um by scott kissinger he talks about how um Derek is like the mirror image of billy and like the opposite of everything that billy was which is you know, obviously makes sense because, yeah. you know, that makes sense. But um, he talks about like in a larger, like thematic sense, like Scream, especially the first one. And then as we sort of go on is like a battle of the sexes. And like you have men, what men fear in Scream, like in the Scream universe, what the men characters fear is like basically being embarrassed or being laughed at or rejected in some way. Whereas the women fear that they're going to be killed by the men. Um, and Derek like embodies the opposite of that because you know he's willing to get up there and make a fool of himself in front of people. He's right. you know not afraid to um, you know 
be potentially publicly rejected by Sydney when she ultimately like asks him to stay away from her for a while like he accepts it and he accepts her boundaries and yeah. you know that plays into the fact that yes he's obviously not the killer because he's the opposite of of all these ways that we know like these characters are programmed to behave in Scream um which you know makes what happens you know to him very tragic because you and know, he's constantly he, like, choosing her. He puts her yeah. over his fraternity and breaks that sort of like, you know, you know, taboo thing. The rule or whatever about Yeah, because he doesn't care. He cares about her more. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it is really tragic. And I do love Derek way more than I like uh Mark in Scream 3. <laughs> so no, it's a bummer no that that's too... dreamy, but <laughs> yeah, it is a bummer that that's who she ended up with. Well, I think a part of it too, you know, just to like jump to roll call a little bit is that Jerry O'Connell plays him so well. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to imagine anyone else kind of like. So, yeah. All the, all the sweetness that he brought to Vern and stand by me, but now he's like a hunk, you know? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah um interesting character um really sad you know what happens to them and it, and it's because of sydney's trauma right because she can't mm. she's not able to because of what she's experienced right. to, she's not sure she's not sure if she can trust him because of what her last boyfriend turned out to be right and like your rational brain like for all the reasons we said said yes like he can't be the killer for all these reasons but there's still a part of you that's never like 100 percent sure yeah. Yeah, there's a really good discussion about that on the psychoanalysis horror podcast, mm-hmm. where they look at like Sydney's trauma through the Scream series, and um, they have a really good discussion about that when they talk about Scream too. If anyone else is interested, give them a nice. listen. Now, uh, let's see what else have we got here. Well, okay, so the extras who. Um, give uh, Jada Pinkett Smith and Omar Epps' characters, Maureen and Phil, their souvenir ghost face costumes in the opening. Um, They actually won that role. She won that role um, based off of a competition sponsored by MTV. Remember when those happened? Yeah. Yeah. They did that for uh, the replacement for Elle in the Legally Blonde musical. Oh, They did like a worldwide search for the next Elle Woods. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and this, this young woman actually like kind of, um, tried acting for a bit. She went on to have some, some small roles in a number of different projects, um, including True Blood. Yeah. The insanity of handing out an entire <laughs> costume. Oh my as God. As a freebie. Would never happen. <laughs> Those things cost like $45. Right? You get like a sticker or a pin. And there's like, and they're like special, like they're glow in the dark. The yeah. knives and the masks glow in the dark. And yeah, it's a whole ass costume. It's a, it's a cloak. It's like the cape. It's, it's the mask. It's a knife. Just like, a- here's your complimentary stab costume. Yeah, the studio sent them. This is the studio made of money because that's insane. It is kind of bonkers. Like the best freebie I got in a for a movie like premiere was I got a like a really nice pin at Captain Marvel. 
Like they were giving out nice pins. So like, and I've gotten pins before at these things that are shitty. This one was a nice one, and I thought, oh wow, that, that's like a good. That's like, great. Yeah, you didn't yeah. get a whole Captain Marvel. I didn't get costume. a Captain Marvel costume <laughs> to put on during the movie. God. That's also like the the chaos going on in that theater. Like they have some guy operating a little ghost face, like flying oh prop. God. Yeah. Insane. And everyone's like throwing popcorn. <laughs> and nothing's like, on the screen yet. Like running around and the, 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 that one guy's like, kill, kill, kill. <laughs> it's like it's absolute so chaos and like nothing's going on in that theater. I know. Like the movie has not started yet. I know. It's nuts. It's nuts. And it's like, this is the premiere. You guys haven't even seen the movie yet. Like, how? Yeah, like, and why is there all this culture around Stab when yeah. Stab isn't out yet? It's insane. Um, but, I, but I still love it. I still love it. Um, oh, and then actually, actually, the usher outside the theater uh, is played by Nev Campbell's stunt double. Yeah, it's pretty fun. Yeah, I'm getting some, Get some FaceTime. Some FaceTime in there. Uh, other small roles: Matthew Lillard, uh, of course, Stu Mocker from the original film, has a cameo as one of the party goers, um, and he he has shown up in other. I don't I don't know that he's in every sequel, but he's in most of them. He just like I'm like, does he just show up on set and like, all right? They're like, yeah, here. I know he's in five. Yeah, he he's one of the ghost face. He's one of the stab ghost face inside. And then his voice appears during the party scene when they do the to wet to Wes. Um, oh, because yeah. they had a bunch of care, act, like legacy actors actually come back and, and do that. Do the, yeah, and he was one of them because you know he was already on set doing other fucking he's around really doing there. other things. Fucking around. Um. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so the character of Stu was originally at one point in the works to be the killer in Scream 3, revealing that he survived the first movie. And so that would like sort of make the Scream 2 cameo um, actually and a party goer, but would be the character of Stu. But um, this was altered uh, after the events of Columbine, which Miss Mel was alluding to earlier um to move the series away from high school violence um but because of this this has led to continued speculation for every single sequel to scream that Stu is still alive and that he is the killer i i don't think he's going to be the killer in this one but you can never it's a zero it's a non-zero possibility i guess are we still talking about this Stu is dead <laughs> Stu got a TV dropped on his face and electrocuted. Right. And like at this point, someone would have mentioned that he's still. Alive. Oh yeah! By the way, Stu like survived <laughs> his injuries, right? So and that time you crushed him with his own TV set, yeah, right. Thirty years ago. Uh, David Warner, who plays Professor Gus Gold, Sydney's drama professor, was personally chosen by Wes Craven, who really liked his work in The Omen, and almost cast him as Freddy Krueger back in the day. But then uh, that Robert Englund became the talk of the town. Now he's the talk of the town. 
Um, David Warner, great actor, and had a fantastic December of 1997 because he also plays Mr. Lovejoy in Titanic. I was thinking about that because I was like, a lot of people probably know him from Titanic more so at this point than The Omen. (laughs) Yeah. Um, He just like, he had a great end to his 97. (laughs) (laughs) Um, oh, I, this is interesting. I actually didn't know about this before. And do you want to tell us about um, who sure. originally was offered the role of Cece? So originally, um, Alicia Silverstone, who many of us would know as a virgin who can't drive, uh, <laughs> in Clueless, was offered the role of Cece, but turned it down for unknown reasons. Um, she was also considered for Maureen at one point. I'm guessing it was maybe a scheduling thing because then they're like, oh, do you want to be Maureen maybe for a, a shorter yeah. period? But she also obviously turned that down. Um, Reese Witherspoon was also considered for CC as well. Makes sense. So it's basically a who's who of the 90s, like, 90s chicks. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, so obviously it ultimately went to Sarah Michelle Geller that it did that it did yeah there's a lot of like sort of you know big 90s uh faces in here rebecca gayhart um plays sorority sister lois what happened like i want them to come back like they they survived they, like, survived and like what are they up to what are they doing where are they um there was a dummy script like a decoy one that had the two of them as the killers I would, I, there's like a second where they try and like, you know, push that idea, but like, don't fully commit to it when they're just there and they're just like, what's going on? Like they're they're just like weirdly standing around, like looking like suspicious, but then also like too dumb to be. But also just dum-dums. Yeah. (laughs) Um, yes. She also, she apparently, uh, auditioned for the role of Tatum originally in the first one and obviously didn't get it. Um, and then auditioned for Haley, Cece, and Maureen, and then ultimately was Lois. No, no. Was there her name, first of all? I didn't even know the sorority girl had a name. Her name's Lois. Lois. And Portia de Rossi is Murphy, I believe. Murphy. I didn't know she had a name either. She does. Um, so... But you know, Rebecca Gayhart, she would have her moment as a killer in Urban Legends. So it all worked <laughs> out for her. Yeah. Um, and then of course, this was Timothy Oliphant's first major film role. And he would mm-hmm. go on to have quite a successful career. Yeah. So that 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 is um some facts about the cast. Um, I get well, I guess do we since we were just kind of like talking about the cast and the characters do we want to like say anything more about some of our characters or should we just wait for all roll call um i don't know i mean um you know we whatever your do you have any burning thoughts or feelings nothing that can't wait okay on to check all right so we can roll into filming Filming. um which as we mentioned you know this movie this movie was a quick, quick turnaround. It began filming six months after the release of Scream in theaters. So Scream might be just now coming out on VHS and, you know, that sort of thing. And they started filming. Um, it came out December 1996. They're filming June 1997. Um, and they only filmed for nine weeks. It was a quick film. It was a quick shoot. Um, 
compared to, you know, most um, film schedules. Uh, they filmed in California and Georgia. Um, and it had, you know, part of the, the quick turnaround in all of this was that, you know, the film was greenlit while Scream was still in theaters, um, right. which, you know, now, like, may not necessarily be, like, that huge of a deal because we're used to, like, things getting greenlit pretty quick as soon as it's clear that they've made back their budget. But um, for but a horror is. sequel like this, it was, like, incredible that they were immediately, like, give us another one. Um, and that they did. And, I mean, um, they had already started production pre-production and writing on um potential sequels just in case um when they were wrapping scream um Niv campbell was contract already like in her contract that she would come back for a sequel at the time she was the only one because she was the only one guaranteed to live mm -hmm. um obviously other people were then optioned for for sequels thereafter um and i think even characters who died at one point or another got i mean obviously they did because billy loomis appears in scream yeah. five in in five cream um five cream. <laughs> so so you know like anyone in in some capacity can can come back um part of like the crazy scheduling though is a lot of the main actors in this were concurrently filming other things while they while they were doing this, so Sarah Michelle Gellar was rapping "I Know What You Did Last Summer" and rapping on the first season of Buffy um, right. while she was doing this. Courtney Cox was obviously on Friends. Uh, Neve Campbell was in Party of Five and had definitely the most hectic schedule. Um, like she would have like basically nights where she did not sleep. Like she would do a night shoot of Scream, go home, wash the fake blood off, and like 15 minutes later report to the set of Party of Five and like just go all day. It was nuts. Um, and then Jerry O'Connell was in Sliders. Um, Sliders, that's right. Yes. Um, so as a result of like the scheduling and the availability, that's why there's a lot of night scenes in this movie and a lot of the characters, um, a lot of these people appear in a lot of night shoots because like that's when they were available. Um, and, you know, Wes Craven kind of like took it as like a sort of like token of like the film's quality that these people were willing to like kind of go through hell to be able to be a part of it when they were already committed to so many other projects. That is a really, um... Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, and we've talked about this before. A, a lot of people, particularly cast members from Scream over the year, have said that um, they would have done anything for Wes Craven because he was so amazing. Yeah. To work and Neve Campbell has, you know, said that as well. And you know, I think if Wes were still alive, she wouldn't have gotten lowballed. Mm. That's for sure. Mm. Um, but virtually everyone has said that they would, you know. If if West came like I think Neve Campbell said at one point like she would not do a screen movie unless he was directing it or mm. was dead, yeah. <laughs> and that's the only reason why she would accept another director. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so absolutely crazy filming schedule um, in terms of just like the moving pieces, but also just the shoot itself um a lot of intense sequences and 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 
just tough sequences. Uh, but Jada Pinkett Smith uh, kind of wanted it that way. Mm-hmm. Her death scene, which is easily the most disturbing kill in the movie, and um, one that usually also ranks pretty high in terms of like disturbing kills for the whole franchise, um, was at her insistence that it be memorable and big and gory and it is um and like you said she got what she wanted and as a thank you she she sent Wes Craven a set of knives for Christmas what do you get the guy who has everything right you know. <laughs> right look, also it's- probably ha- already has knives but you know what but it's it was the 90s knives. door-to-door knife salesmen were still a thing I think I don't remember any from my childhood but I think it was still kind of a. Doesn't Phoebe do that at one point on Friends? She tries tele-selling knives. She's like a telemarketer for knives. Tele-selling toner. Toner. Well, she does that. I think she. Well, I think, there, she there, I think there's a quip about selling knives at one point. I think there is. But yeah, she does try to sell toner. At one point as well. So yeah, so you got to set it knives. Yeah. Um, Agnes Scott College in Decatur, Georgia, and UCLA uh, both stand in for the fictional Windsor College in Ohio, where the film is set. The Omega Beta Zeta House, um, which is not the sorority trying to recruit Sydney, but the sorority that Cece belongs to, um, that was filmed at the Crank House in Altadena, California. It's also known as the Fair Oaks Ranch. Um, the house is a registered landmark dating back to 1882 and has been used as a filming location in a number of other movies, including Hocus Pocus, Matilda, and Catch Me If You Can. Mm-hmm. How about that? Yeah, it was fun, like, thinking about the, you know, and it's interesting to see the different ways people decorate these, um, you know, the, these houses up. and Because I remember there's a house... The murder house in the first season of American Horror Story, um, the exterior appears in a Halloween episode of Buffy. Um, and it was interesting because it's such a recognizable house. Um, so, that's good. Yeah, so keep an eye out. Keep an eye out. Keep an eye out also for a Freddy Krueger Easter egg. Um, one of my favorites. You can spot the Slasher's iconic sweater hanging in Sydney's closet in her dorm room near the beginning of the movie when she is getting ready to go to class. Uh, You can also spot director Wes Craven um, in the hospital scene. He is in the background as one of the doctors. Less memorable than his cameo as the janitor in the first one. Yeah, less memorable, but at least he's in there. Um, this is a this is a, a good one. Uh, the at one point in the film, Randy makes reference to nude pictures of Gail that had been released to the internet, and Gail says they were fake, and they put her head on um, Jennifer Anderson's body. This is a nod to a real life situation where um, fake nude pictures of Courtney Cox were. Um, spread online in the wake of her friend's fame i do love how much scream 2 in particular like 
is very aware that friends is like a cultural phenomenon but in this universe i guess courtney cox does not star <laughs> in it because they 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 reference because both jennifer aniston and david schwimmer get name dropped in this movie and mm -hmm. like obviously you know they're actors but at the time that was what they were famous for was friends and that's why you're referencing them so like they don't directly say that that friends exists in this universe but they do that a little in scream three too especially yeah. with um, parker posey's character yes yeah <laughs> um so you know it's always a, a fun sort of thought experiment to go through like well what is friends in this which universe is this like right. you know <laughs> did does al gore go on to win to the 2000 election in this year like it's unclear probably not um i think we would have heard about that in, in later screams <laughs> but um i always found the the weird relationship between scream 2 and friends very interesting <laughs> it's fun it makes for a good chuckle so who scored the film? Um, Marco Beltrami. That's right. Returned to write the score, although as we mentioned, Danny Elfman did write Cassandra, the Cassandra Aria and the Cassandra Aria reprise, um, which are used at pivotal points in the movie. Um, also weirdly snippets from Hans Zimmer's score for Broken Arrow. Yeah, and <laughs> that ended up being kind of controversial at one yeah. point. Yeah, they were used as in test screenings um, because the score wasn't done yet. And I guess the audience like weirdly responded like hella well to this other score that they just kept them. It's the it's the twang when Gail yeah. Yeah, yeah, that which is like a very like famous oh oh. like you know, like sequence of music in the scream movies and they weren't yes. written for this they would appear in another film yeah first yeah um, you know i see why they wanted to keep them but like it's weird it's good it's very twin peaksy yeah um but yeah, it's odd it's an, that's an odd it, it's odd it's great music it makes sense i understand why they did it but it's a weird choice yeah <laughs> um and then as we mentioned, um, well, so there's a couple, obviously Red Right Hand appears in this because it appears in all the movies in some capacity. Um, a few other songs get, get nods here. Obviously we said, um, She Said by A Collective Soul, which was instead of Bittersweet Symphony, which could you imagine if this yeah. ended with Bittersweet Symphony? I <laughs> At the time, they didn't know what they were doing, you know, like they, they, they couldn't have known. They couldn't have um, known. They were young. <laughs> but um, that would have been funny. That would have um, been. It is a bummer that there is no repeat sultry version of Don't Fear the Reaper. Wow. Yeah. It can only be solo. Yeah. But um, tell us a little bit about the special effects, because you're, you're, you're usually knowledgeable about these things. Yeah, so of course in a slasher, most of the special effects come down to the kill scenes and the blood and gore um, and how much is there in a slasher and how much has to be edited out. Um, there's quite, there was quite a bit in this movie, but interestingly, uh, eight different cuts of Scream 2 
featuring various levels of that gore and blood were sent to the MPAA before it was eventually passed with an R rating. And that actually most likely only came about because there was direct intervention from Dimension Films founder, Bob Weinstein. Um, and because multiple cuts had to kept being submitted, Wes Craven decided he was gonna be a sneaky little boy. <laughs> and at one point he intentionally sent an over the top cut that was like extra graphic. Um, in particular, I guess it featured Phil Omar Epps' character getting stabbed multiple times in the head in the yeah. And you could see Randy getting his throat cut. Um, yeah. Very graphically. And Randy's throat getting cut. And then apparently there was like way more blood in the Hallie kill. Um, and he was like, it was kind of like meant to be like, all right, and they'll tell us to cut all this stuff and that's fine because we don't want that much of it anyway. But actually the MPAA was fine with all of that because they felt that um, the underlying message of the film warranted the violence. Yeah. So, Obviously they did ultimately end up cutting some of that. They did, yeah. So they so. got the approval and then Wes was like, all right, well now we have the approval, cut this stuff. We don't yeah. need Um. So yeah, so I guess now we'll move into like our proper roll call and this will give us a chance to say anything we want either about the actors in the film or the characters that they portray. And we'll start with David Arquette as Dewey Riley. Top billing. Good for him. Top billing. Um, he also yeah. he has top billing in the original. Which like I guess makes sense. I like, you know, now with my today brain looking at like, oh, was he really like the biggest actor in these movies? Um well, and I think with the three of them, they just go in alphabetical order. Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah. Um but yeah, obviously, you know, I as we mentioned in our original um in in our first our episode about Scream, the character of Dewey was meant to be kind of very different. And then David Arquette kind of brought this, like the Dewey we know and love today. Um, he was originally supposed to be more of a serious character. Um, so he just continues. Dewey, you know, gets fillier with his little limp, <laughs> his nerve damage that goes Which away and comes back first because of how he's attacked in this movie yeah but then eventually comes back because he's got it in the fifth movie again i love it um so yeah so that's yeah he you know and it's he's just such a lovable like it's it, i think it's difficult to have a character who's supposed to be a punching bag be as enjoyable as Dewey is. Um, and, you know, 90% of that is David Arquette just really understanding the assignment. Yes, just leaning in and leaning in so well. Um, and we t and we talked a little bit before too, like it's, it's so nice and like fun watching um, Dewey and Gail's relationship develop. Mm -hmm. Me. and you know they're he's mad at her and we don't get like a super clear reason why but probably just you know because she's putting her career first yeah. and just like how they come together to do the case again and then by the time we get the sound booth sequence which is still so tense I feel mm -hmm. like and affecting to this day like 
you fucking feel it when she watches him on the other side of the glass get attacked. And I'm sure it's because at the time these two individuals were dating and, you know, had genuine feelings for each other. Um, But it's just, it really works. Like you feel the affection these people have for each other. Yeah. No, they're very, they have great chemistry together, Um, which I feel like, you know, isn't, is not always true for people who are like real life couple, real life relationship. Um, Sometimes like, you know, it doesn't really translate into acting. Um, And sometimes people who don't date at all have insane chemistry, but um, yeah, these two are, are very good together. Um, so then we have, of course, our um, final girl and her second outing as such. We have Campbell as Sydney Prescott. We've talked a lot about her um, and the character. Um, I think what I would say is clearly Campbell had an absolutely exhausting couple months. And I think you see it. And I yeah. think it really elevates her performance yeah like just the way she's able to like to cry or and be on the verge of tears she looks so vulnerable but still so like she's got this you know yeah no and she definitely like in this movie she looks tired (laughs) she looks tired she feels like you know, and part of this is because she is, but like the character of Sydney, like at different points, feels like she's running on fumes. Like, and you you get that, um, like through the just the way she carries herself, and um, you know, unfortunate part of that, you know, was actually in the scheduling and how like fucking exhausted she was, like for nine weeks. But um, I think it lends itself to you know, sort of Sydney going from, you know not damsel in distress, but like, you know, victimized high schooler to, you know, somebody who's world wary and like aware of, um, you know, the role they're going to be forced to play in in what's happening. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And then of course, Courtney Cox as Gail Weathers, our third (laughs) member of the trio here. and uh yeah and we also kind of talked about gail's arc and 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 cox just sort of i i always always laugh when they in the sequence leading up to randy's death and they're like on the quad Mm -hmm. and they start running around to the people on cell phones and she grabs the one phone (laughs) she's like who is this and they're like who is this and she's like real weathers have actually How dare you not know? <laughs> I don't know this. It's like, you're trying to find ghost space. Like, <laughs> Get off the phone. Not the phone. All right. Next in the billing after the, the leads, we have Sarah Michelle Geller as Cece Cooper. Yeah, I think she's great. I think there, she, you know, and it's good because it does get the, you know, the point across by having this, you know, character just sort of cut down. But like, you feel like there's so much more there um to this character and like it's a surprisingly meaty role for only being really in two scenes um and definitely yeah sets up the kirby the god kirby uh character 
Um, and it's a testament to Geller that CC does have that much personality and really come through when she yeah two scenes. Yeah, like you're in that film that film class scene and you're like they've had this argument before or they've had some version of this argument before like you can like you get the dynamic of like cc's like relationship with these other students just based on how sarah michelle geller's responding to everyone individually um like she's just i think she's just a very good actress um and you know this was sort of pre like slightly before everyone kind of like also found that out um Mm-hmm. but I really I've always I always enjoyed Cece's character and was always bummed when she she died but she does have a great um kill sequence she does it she goes out in style that's a that's another tense that's another great set piece in this in this movie I think everyone always goes mm-hmm. to the sound booth first but the sorority house and Cece's kill is really good too yeah you know? it's one of those things where it's like she's so close to help because there's like a party just like right across the street and like you think she might get out especially too because there is so much meat to her character before the scene you're like okay this has got to be a character she's gonna get out and like no she's and yeah, you know, it's she so gets gone. And like a, and it's it, you know it's 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 the Black Christmas thing, which it's nodding to. Right, it goes up into the attic and yeah, and, yeah. the attic, and it's just like, oh no, you don't know how much danger is up there, like you know. Yeah, and I do think too. Obviously, now having seen this movie a million times and knowing what I know, her death is the biggest clue to who the killer is. Because Mickey Be- disappears. Not even because Mickey disappears, because oh. the only link she has to the killer, like, you're like, okay, like, everyone else, like, it makes sense why they're getting killed. Why does she get killed? It has to be somebody in the film class. Right. And because also, that's the only overlap. And also, isn't it in this sequence where we see Mrs. Loomis on the payphone? Yeah, like, you see the back of her head or something. Yeah, because she's, she's the ghost face on the phone, and Mickey is the one yeah in the house in the house um but you know i always it always was interesting to me that like that sequence was like in hindsight like the biggest giveaway that the killer yeah. must be it must be mickey because he's the only other person from the film class who we're like with right you know and who we know as a character obviously besides randy so um right that is that that always was interesting to me that's a good point well, speaking of Randy, next up is Jamie Kennedy as Randy Meeks. Yeah, it is such a bummer. I did see that on a, a podcast interview he was on, he they asked him about like that that one sequence where he weirdly switches into a British accent for no reason. Oh yeah. When he's talking to Sydney when they first like had their first conversation and he was like, I have no idea what, what I was doing or why they kept that, that take. I don't know. I don't know. It just happened, man yeah um no yeah obviously he's great and he's a very good ad libber too and very good um Mm -hmm. thinking on the fly because i remember reading that there was actually in the take that appears in the film somebody messed up a line in the film class and he actually altered his line to um make up for it it was the the terminator Terminator. it was the alien conversation yeah um yeah i believe it's stay away from her you bitch but because of that the character randy ends up getting the actual line wrong right because 
Jamie Kennedy was riffing and ad-libbing, yeah. which is funny to think about. Yeah. Um, yeah, I love Randy. I love his relationship with Sydney. Um, like he has this affection for her, but it never goes into like weird, gross incel territory or like yeah. he doesn't. Like, I mean, like he likes her and like, you know, he's like, oh yeah, it would have been nice to get the girl, but like she's his friend and, right. and they like have a shared experience. And that bond is more important. Like I love that as soon as Sydney hears about the murders at the premiere, she's like, where's Randy? Mm-hmm. That's who that's who she goes to. They're anchors for each other. I like that a lot. Um, and and while I do while I do agree, and I've come to terms with the fact that Randy's death was kind of necessary. I have seen some stuff, and I do think it could have been interesting if Randy stuck around and sort of became like um, the droids of the Scream franchise. Yeah. R2D2 and the C3PO like he was just always here as like our horror Greek chorus right which in a way he is just because the characters who fulfill that role are always hearkening back to Randy like whether again it's the videotape of him or uh, Rory Culkin trying to become the new Randy in the fourth movie or um, I forget their names his... Jasmine Savoy Brown. As well, Mindy. yeah, I I mean her like character name. I was like, who oh, her um, name? Mindy, Mindy, and Mindy Meeks. Mindy Meeks. Mindy Meeks Martin. <laughs> yeah. Um. You know, being like literally related to Randy, and you know, fulfilling his his role in in the story as well. Yeah. Um, so in that way, Randy lives on. But Randy does live on, and it's it's for the best this way. I think, or the, and they've made it work well. Yeah. next we've got the incredible laurie metcalf as debbie salt slash mrs loomis the um, mastermind i would say shoot a prison for a year she is so good in that sequence she only blinks one time i think eyeballs like out of her head out of her head um i love the white suit I think that's meant to be an homage to Mrs. Voorhees and the white sweater. Yeah, which I always assumed like her presence in the movie period was meant to be an homage to to Mrs. Voorhees. Sure, she's getting revenge for the death of her son. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, just (laughs) so, so unhinged. So, so just awesome. (laughs) And it is fun watching her go from playing like, you know, the fake reporter character to, uh, you know, absolute lunatic. And the way it plays out too, where, you know, like you assume that she's safe because, you know, we've seen Gail interact with her and she's just this annoying reporter, but Sydney's never seen her. And obviously right. the second Sydney sees her is like, that's Ms. Loomis. Right. Well, and I think we're looking for, based off of, you know, remember all we know as the viewer is is the first movie. So I think we're looking for someone younger. We're looking for mm-hmm. Sydney's peers. We're not expecting an adult. We're also looking for a man. Like that's the thing right. that happens in the first movie is like they have the conversation where they're like, it can't be a girl. And then like no woman is ever suspected in that movie of being Ghostface. And obviously it's two dudes. In this one, it's, you know, they don't have the repeat conversation, but again, there's never, with the exception of the 
doofus sorority girls for like three seconds there's never like the possibility that it's like a woman in our mind um and it's interesting to watch that evolve because obviously eventually like with the exception of scream three like there's always the the other killer has always been a woman yes and yeah there are two other women that have put on the ghost face mask now yeah so you know that's something interesting to think about with um the evolution of gender equity of Ghostface. Yeah, Mrs. Loomis was a trailblazer. All right, then we have the great Elise Neal as Hallie McDaniel. I do get sad when when she gets killed in the um in the car sequence. It's and like you know, like with the way that the shot is framed, you're like, all right, she's about to get like yeah demolished they're they're doing that trope of like going back in horror movies Mm -hmm. Um, yeah because yeah what the fuck that's like the dot like that's like the one out of character thing like what the fuck is she doing i know like just keep running you should have she's like i have to know who it is it's like since when i know i know i know but it does Um, all the more tragic, I think, for Sydney because it's like if she hadn't gone back, yeah. her best friend would still be alive. Yeah, but no, I I think uh, she's great as Haley. It's another one. I mean, like rip to all of Sydney's female best friends no. getting picked <laughs> off. But um, I think uh, that would have also been a fun character to have hang around. Yeah, I agree. And of course, we've we've also talked about the tragedy of this next character as well, Jerry O'Connell as uh, Derek Feldman. Yeah. Um, I I just recently realized Feldman was probably like a nod to Jerry O'Connell's Stand by Me co-star Corey Feldman. Yeah. Um, the the name things in here are because there's an Anthony Perkins in Scream Four. Yeah, the names in Scream have always been. Thank yeah. You. They're fun to like, like, obviously Billy Loomis, Sam Carpenter, you know. Right. right. Even Hallie McDaniel might be a reference to Hattie McDaniel. Mm. Um, there's, there, yeah, there's always stuff with the names. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Jerry O'Connor's great. We, we talked about him earlier. We'll move on to Timothy Oliphant as Mickey Altieri, um, our second killer. I think timothy oliphant ages like fine wine <laughs> he's got that like jack nicholson it's that rich vanderbilt uh those good, those, whatever the vanderbilts uh <laughs> you know the weird um the weird youth potions that they have access to yeah but it works man it works <laughs> No, he's great in this, and he, you know, does a good job of, as as both of Mickey's sort of personalities of, like, film student Mickey, and then also reality broken brain Mickey um, at the end. Um, and he also, like, plays a creep really well, too. Like, that's the other thing, too, is it's not just that Mickey's, like, a lunatic. It's that he's, you know, like, that sequence where he's, like, pretending, you know, he's, like, fucking with Sydney um you know and trying to you know basically gaslighting her into you know thinking Derek's um you know 
his accomplice yeah. is like very effective and creepy it's very effective it's so tough to watch because there's like boyfriend killer boyfriend killer and then he eventually just shoots him right and that's another one of those moments where i'm always like maybe this time will be different maybe sydney will untie Derek. yeah <laughs> um yeah he's great um the motive is scary for mickey mm-hmm. you know his desire for the trial um that's that's creepy you know i like that you know scream always you know we always kind of have the personal motive and then we have something that's a bit more um high concept um right we, we always sort of have someone who's pulling the strings a bit more someone who's a bit more the dominant there's person. like the brains versus yeah. like the person getting used which i think is actually like a trend that ended in With five cream <laughs> Five cream. because yeah. they're like basically equals they have they want the same thing yeah. um and they're like intellectual equals with each other as well and like right. share the same opinion um I as opposed to like suggestion that richie may have groomed amber yeah because he's a little not... bit older than her yeah but that but i think there's not enough there to say that concretely and because amber just seems so like simpatico with him on what they yeah. want they both like they he almost like weirdly seems like too crazy and in the weeds with what he wants to like have actively like gone out and, and they're done that yeah but um yeah no it is interesting how there's always one person who's like you know like, i don't give a fuck what you want like you know <laughs> this is why i did it right right and that's and that's that's our mrs lewis yeah, because she just then obviously kills She's like, Mickey. Come on. yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, all right. Next, we have Jada Pinkett uh, as Maureen Evans. And obviously we went, incredible. Yeah. Yeah. We went into what we needed to go to into there. Um, someone we haven't talked about at all yet, leave Schreiber as Cotton Weary. First of all, I like get hung up on the fact that for some reason Sydney like in her brain confused Billy with Cotton. <laughs> like she saw enough of him to be like, this is the guy. And she, you know, it's not even like, you know, like it I, like it's like in Lay Miz when like there's that guy who looks supposedly exactly like Jean Valjean. And then you see him and you're like, he he really doesn't. <laughs> um but for some reason everyone's convinced it's him like what like i know and you're like wait excuse me <laughs> but um, um i think leave shriver is very good at you know obviously he so he he had the one the very brief cameo as cotton in the first movie just like in a news segment in this one you know we actually get to see cotton and like it's a he's a creepy scary guy who like clearly is harboring a lot of anger and resentment and like at one point you know sort of like uses his physical size difference uh you know to sort of corner sydney and you're just not really sure like if this dude's gonna pop off at not or not like it's almost scarier to think he's not involved at all with ghostface right which in the ending where there were four killers he's not connected to the others yeah but he's just like doing his own crazy thing because he's crazy yeah like oh shit yeah. Um, <laughs> see that 
but I, I agree. I think it's, it's really good. And he, do, he does a good job of being like, you know, making us think like, what the hell is this guy's deal? Like, um, yeah. and I, I love when in the final sequence, um, and he comes in yeah. and he's like, cotton meet Bailey's mother. And he's just like, what? He's <laughs> <Billy. laughs> just like real quick. He's just like, so. And then he, <laughs> what? I like what afterwards when Sydney's like, give me the gun, Cotton. And he's like, oh yeah, sure, sure, sure. Here you go. <laughs> like he yeah, reverts but, to like a after, puppy. After they both, when Gail and Sydney like gun down Mickey, <laughs> and he's just like, whoa! Sydney is a lot nicer to Cotton than he deserves. He's um, he's very nice. Which is fine because he gets killed in the next one and it's chill. But (laughs) he's like so it's funny how like out of his depth he becomes in in the climax of the movie. Like in the lead up to that, you're like, yeah, this guy's scary. This guy's a little creepy and threatening. In this, you're like, oh yeah, this dude doesn't have no idea what he's doing. What the fuck are you talking about? Um what? what? Um, whoa, hey. And then when he, and the, you know, he backs up into. Um... <laughs> yeah, or when he, oh, yeah, he's like, who's that? The other killer. Yeah. <laughs> or when he, oh. when he, when he helps Gail up out of the pit, <laughs> and he's like, is there anyone else down there? Yeah. He's like, anyone else down there with you? So good. When Gail, like, crawl, like, pops up out of that pit, I always find it so funny. Hilarious um yeah but now he's great um you know unfortunate that after this movie there's not more done with cotton's character but um yeah i have thoughts about what happens to him in scream three and we'll go into that more when we cover scream three um all right let's see then we've got lewis arquette as chief uh lewis hartley lewis arquette is david arquette's real life father and a famous actor in his own right Mm -hmm. Um, um and he's fine yeah my one thing with with scream 2 uh, that the chief's character made me think of is like they introduced this idea of the copycat you know with like the and the names and stuff and then mm-hmm. they kind of drop that yeah yeah which you know maybe a product of like some of the script changes like during actual yeah. filming yeah. that um because like once you hear mickey's motive like it's not clear that there's any sort of copycat desire there it's just um he's basically utilizing existing ip to create a quote-unquote sequel that will sell (laughs) is what he's doing as opposed to um you know doing a copycat yeah and thinking about it also i guess you could explain it in universe that like that was the plan but then or it was like Mrs. Loomis's plan. Like she's the one who well, wanted that. She, I feel like she's the one who kind of goes off script when she kills Randy because she gets mad that he badmouths Billy. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot that's like one of my favorite. See, when he's on the phone, he's like, Billy Loomis, what the, what the fuck? fuck? That rat faced mama's boy. <laughs> oh, so good. All right, and then rounding out the rest 
of the sort of um, build cast. We have Dwayne Martin as Joel, Rebecca Gayhart. Only smart guy. Oh my God. Maybe the smartest person in all of Scream. (laughs) Joel. And I like that he comes back at the end to help Gayhart. He's like, oh, it's all handled now. The killer's got great. Let me just. Right up here. Let's do it. Yeah. Um, Rebecca Gayhart, we talked a little bit about. And then uh, Portia de Rossi as Murphy. Portia de Rossi making interesting acting choices in this movie. Definitely. Of course, like we said, we always laugh at, hi. No, I really mean that. Hi. It's that and like the fact that she seems so spacey the rest of the movie. Plays it very spacey. Like, is she like high? It, like, I <laughs> it feels like the beginning of Lindsay Bluth for Arrested Development yeah like like i don't know it just she she always like like on a different level and i don't know if she's trying to play it like oh i'm a stupid sorority girl or like she truly just was not interested in what she was doing but it's a weird performance it's weird all right and then just briefly david warner plays professor gus gold we talked about him and the great december he had Mm -hmm. Uh, Omar Epps as Phil Stevens from the opening. Yeah, good. Marisol Nichols actually as Donnie, who is the sorority sister that scares Cece. She cuts. Oh, I was like, who the sweater. fuck is Donnie? Yeah, she's coming back to get her sweater or something before the party. She's like, don't forget uh, to lock up. Yeah, uh, Joshua Jackson actually is playing that the other guy that is in the film class debate. And then Nancy O'Dell is um, the other reporter that sort of like mopes around with Debbie. Yeah. <laughs> and then of she course- She goes back in other, in other screen films. Yes, she like does. That reporter's like a repeat reporter who shows up. <laughs> um, and then within the world of the film and within Stab, we've got Heather Graham playing herself slash Casey Becker. Playing herself, playing Casey Becker. Uh, Tori Spelling. I don't even know you and I dislike you already. Already. Heather Graham, actually, she, it was kind of a bummer. She um, wanted to be a bigger part of the Scream franchise um, and and was bummed that her role couldn't be larger. But, um, well, we have to just produce the Stab movies in full. Right. Yeah. Including Stab 5, where they establish time travel. Or time travel. It's the worst one. Um, also within that, you have Tori Spelling. We talked about playing herself slash Sydney Prescott in Stab and Luke Wilson as himself slash Billy Loomis. Which Stab. makes the most sense. It's it's so good. I love Luke Wilson just leans so hard into the meta-ness of it all. Yeah. Um, That's the way the cookie crumbles. Yeah. And then screenwriter Kevin Williamson has a cameo as the character Ron. Uh, who he's in cotton wearies he's interviewing cotton weary yeah in yeah. that little sequence and then of course the great roger l jackson returns as the voice of ghostface um and then fun fact that i did learn is the sorority sister on the phone with sarah michelle geller is oh. selma blair who is obviously known for many things um would go on to co-star in um cruel intentions with sarah michelle geller and is also sarah michelle geller's real life best friend so besties yeah 
So some other kind of fun production notes like that. Robert Rodriguez, uh, you know, director of From Dust Till Dawn, Spy Kids, Sin City. He actually directed the scenes from Stab within this movie. And that um, gets woven into the narrative in Scream 4 when we see him credited as the director of Stab during the Stabathon. Yep. <laughs> um, oh, since I mentioned Roger Jackson, of course, I'll mention this. Yes, he is the iconic voice of Ghostface. Like the first movie, he was on set so that he could talk to the actors in real time while they were filming their scenes. Also, like the first film, he was kept hidden to sort of increase the tension. It worked. A lot of the cast were freaked out. Except Sarah Michelle Geller, who would have conversations with him on the phone in between takes. <laughs> what are you up to? Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay, now we have to go back to you threatening me. <laughs> Which I'm like, was the conversation in the Ghostface voice? Like, does he have another voice? Right. Does he like talk to his family in his life? As like, how does he pick up the phone? That's how he greets like his friends. <laughs> Hello, John. <laughs> And they're like, all right, Roger, you <laughs> promised you would stop. This is why we don't invite you to things. Right. Um, we talked about the script leaks a bit. We talked about all of the nonsense involving that. They tried their best to um, conceal what ended up being the ending of the film. You know, they didn't give the cast the ending pages of the script so they could um, keep the identity of the killer only known to the people that absolutely needed to know. Um, those that did get those pages had to sign NDAs. Anti-copy paper was used. I think that was the first time anti-copy paper was used in for filming. Yeah. Which is like apparently a weird color is what, um, I mean, obviously now who knows if it works, but like in 90s technology, it was, right. it worked. Yeah. Um, and, you know, because of the whodunit nature, like the cast and crew took a lot of bets. David Arquette evidently won. Um, so good on him for that. And, you know, yeah, we talked a little bit about the different dummy scripts um, and decoy scripts and alternative drafts and original drafts. Almost everybody was the killer at one point. Um, Oh, yeah. Oh, and then of course, Courtney Cox and David Arquette were dating at the time that they were filming Screen 2. They would go on to marry in 1999. Uh, but they weren't the only uh, little romantic fling on set. Jerry O'Connell and Sarah Michelle Geller were actually dating around this time. Um, I don't know that it was like super serious. No, they've like talked about it since then because they went to high school together and she kind of had like a crush on him in high school but at the time they were in high school together he was like a senior and she was a freshman so he like did not speak to her for many years until it was like more age appropriate <laughs> um but she obviously would go on to start dating freddie prince jr a couple years after this and marry him so indeed she would all right, so Scream 2 is released on December 12th, 1997. Like we said, less than a year after Scream. Both Titanic and Tomorrow Never Dies, huge December releases, actually moved their scheduled release date 
Um, so they didn't have to compete with Scream 2. That's like how much their respective studios were afraid of going up against this movie. Which it's funny because I'm like, what's the common audience? And then I'm like, well, maybe it's David Warner fans. <laughs> <laughs> that was the Venn diagram. That was the Venn diagram. <laughs> That's what they didn't want to, they were like, oh shit, like this, they did the calculus and the, the accounting math and they're like, we can't. Fuck. <laughs> Um, obviously Titanic went on to outgross everybody and their mother at that point, but Scream mm-hmm. 2 did very well. Um, in total, it grossed $172.4 million against its $24 million budget, making for about $148 million profit. Um, for the next three years, Scream 2 held the record for the biggest December box office before it was unseated by What Women Want. Mm-hmm. Um, which is in, like a lot of people are surprised by that but remember titanics really didn't gain legs until after new year's yeah that was like a word of mouth um yeah movie. the reviews for scream 2 were incredibly positive as we've mentioned it was critically well received just like the first one um people liked the subversion that was going on the continued exploration of tropes and the return of um, the characters, the upping of the stakes. Ms. Bell did mention that, yeah, there were some negative reviews. The death of Randy was criticized because he was such a popular character. Um, and some reviews also say that there was too much emphasis on increasing the body count rather than fleshing out the characters. Mm-hmm. And as of now, Scream 2 has a Rotten Tomato score of 82%, a Metacritic score of 63 an IMDb rating of 6.3, and a letterbox rating of 3.4 out of 5. Nice. Yeah. It's interesting that Rotten Tomatoes is sort of, like, noticeably higher than the others. Yeah. Well, in, like, IMDb and letterbox, I expect to be, especially IMDb, like, is always a little bit, like, you know, messed with because of the crowdsourcing of the, um, the, uh ratings but metacritic usually is a good you know does good at like sort of like accounting for like professional reviews versus like online yahoos who are like downvoting stuff so um it's interesting but i would i i feel like the rotten tomatoes score is a little bit in this case more reliable in terms of like the critical the overall critical response to the movie but yeah yeah, I think I would agree with that. Um, so we, we went through a lot of the the analysis, I think. I was going to say, is there any analysis that we kind of didn't hit? Because we were sort of touching on things. Just the only um, thing I, I put in here that I thought, and this is something worth talking about maybe if we do like a sort of like meta slasher episode at some point. But um, there's this like folklorist uh, guy, Jerome Cohen, who had a theory of monsters as it, in folklore and outlined sort of theses around different monsters. And I felt like virtually any slasher um, killer, but Ghostface in particular, um, felt very interesting as like looking at sort of like, you know, you can go into it um, and find his theses online rather than us like diving too much into it but for example like um you know 
the the idea that fear of the monster is really a kind of desire and you know what we fear about you know and, and particularly with Ghostface who represents like the darkest parts of of horror films and media in that it's the the truth as we enjoy watching these violent deaths um you know and you know that was always you know that that's something very interesting to me and then sort of like um you know the the idea of the monster's a harbinger of a category of category chaos so it's like you know the monster represents basically a moral panic like something about about different monsters represent um different sort of um you know moral sure. panics yeah. at different times and sure. the big one that that really stuck with me is that the monster always escapes um mm-hmm. you know in there's another in, ghost face yeah there's always another ghost face michael myers obviously until they threw in the wood chipper <laughs> survives. Yeah, well, um, in like five years when they reboot Halloween again, he'll be back. Yeah, but um, yeah, there's always with Ghostface in particular, like it's it's impossible to get rid of Ghostface because you know it's an idea exactly. um, that is shared and passed on. Which is part of what lends to the longevity of this franchise and also what makes it so compelling and terrifying right is that ghostface has become an idea and anyone can and as we see does take up the mask for their own cause how to kill an idea you can't yeah um you know even if you burn every single you know ghost face you know if you outlawed ghost face masks um you know it goes still yeah ghost face would still persist um and will always persist like we said in the post-apocalyptic wasteland right of our world you will see off in the distance the small figures of of sydney prescott chased by Ghostface um into the horizon mm-hmm. um but anyway it's worth looking at just because um it's an interesting way of thinking about um slasher killers who i feel like have sort of become like modern boogeymen um sure. yeah in a way mm-hmm yeah that's definitely worth exploring more i think yeah so in terms of one good scare what do you think is the most frightening moment of scream 2 um i think this is one that's shared by a lot of people but i really got freaked out the first time watching the car sequence Mm. and to this day still i'm always a little bit tense watching it but um that is probably one of the most well done most clever high tension sequences in a horror film i think um you know and it's just it's always it's it's very incredible and very very like butt clenching the entire time yes that's a great way to describe it uh, <laughs> i agree i think for me it's the sound booth mm-hmm. it gets me um the way, the way it's filmed and Gail maneuvering through and seeing where Ghostface is and that we don't know where Ghostface is, all of it culminating in like that attack on Dewey. Mm-hmm. Just so like dramatic and hard, like that, it's such a good sequence, but it's really scary too. Yeah. I also think that sequence shows off the, the sort of fun physicality of Ghostface that seems to persist no matter who's behind the mask. Um, Ghostface is always a little bit clumsy 
um and it's uh, a person you know it's not a yeah. michael jason you know yeah um so that's always fun to see like oh yeah like can you see i i don't know you can see that well in the mask and tripping over his boots and different and things yeah so in the view from the closet where we think about how we might view the film in question from an lgbtq plus lens have you found anything in there so i was thinking about this because obviously the first one is like the big one um yeah. for that and you know obviously in general like i would say some of the biggest um fans of scream are the queer community um i saw a joke last year when five cream came out um <laughs> just gonna keep doing it um that uh, somebody like posted a joke tweet that was like oh yeah like the the lgbtq plus community was created by the government to financially support the scream franchise <laughs> um which i feel is very fitting um but i think you know the first film obviously you know touched something with a lot of people in that way and established what it established and um you know it was obviously written in a certain way um and the subsequent ones are not nearly as queer like i'm actually you know i don't think there's a single is there a single queer character in all of scream like uh -huh. canonic canonically like in our face mindy she talks about making out with oh mindy yeah she makes out with yes yeah. so this is the first time we actually see you know so that's like the first time we like truly see it but i was thinking about like what the longevity like the lasting like impact is of it and i think there's just something about like you know and like it's interesting because it is like about such you know the dark parts of humanity and a villainous you know character but there is something about like being able to put on a visage and become something bigger and a part of something like you said something that is an idea um that's bigger than than any one um person or any one identity and you know all the different types of people who choose or you know to do in this in this case choose to do that um and there's just something about that i think um that i've been thinking about especially having watched that uh shutter documentary series on queer horror and like you know just the different ways that horror in general like is so big for the queer community and a big part of it is because like it plays with identity and it and mm -hmm. it plays with transformation and putting on um visages and, and costumes and that sort of thing and um i just yeah i feel like it, there's something to that um that kind of has a lasting lasting effect i can't believe i, ever, I just watched that movie yesterday and i was like where's your <laughs> gay character <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think that I think that's a that's a really good reading of the film. It's kind of what I, I was I was just thinking about. Like, yeah, you know, there's I don't think there's too much obviously in our face, but just the sensibilities of the movie mm -hmm. and the film and some of the humor is very um, you know, indicative of uh the queer community, you know, because because it was written by a gay man. Yeah. Um, so I guess there is also that joke in this movie about one of 
Uh, the bodyguards being one of Sydney's bodyguards being gay. One of her bodyguards is gay. Yeah. And, and then it, he makes it, don't, it. don't tell Joe. Yeah. <laughs> Before he gets murked. But, um, yeah, and he gets killed. Yeah. But, well, that brings us to our final segment, which is Legacy, Legacy, What is a Legacy? And that covers the impact of the film and um its status in pop culture and uh you want to scream too yeah i mean it's <laughs> it screamed too it was it was critically acclaimed um you know there's been lots of discussion then and now about um if it's as good as the original if it's better than the original it is regarded as one of the best horror sequels of all time and held up as a standard of what other horror sequels should strive to be. Um, it had our new characters, it had our returning characters and mixed them together in equal measure. Um, it was like an entirely different story that built upon what had come before in a smart way, in a way that wasn't just cashing in. And it established one of, you know, the longest um, continuous timelines in a horror franchise ever. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, everything we have now from Scream, yes, of course we owe to the original, but we owe almost an equal measure to Scream too. Yeah, no, it's definitely something I've been thinking about with like the decision they made and the direction they went, they decided to go with Scream 2 was like, you know, again, like that was a fork in the road for you know, the entire franchise and obviously the story. Um, and if they had chosen different, like I think like whatever they chose for that sequel was going to decide how the rest of it was going to go just by the nature of the series. Like obviously there's definitely some goofy um, one-off timelines and that sort of thing in other sequels, but in this it's like, okay, whatever they do for the second one, that's going to decide how the rest of anything else is going to go um and here we are in 2023 almost 30 years after the first one came out um yeah getting ready to see the sixth installment gail living in new york at her daytime tv talk show or whatever the hell she yeah, does heard her good morning america segment yeah yeah and um you know no promises chatters but there might be a special bulletin in your future where um we we do some first impression thoughts about screams mm -hmm. um i think scream six and this movie already have a lot of parallels you know it's coming out a year after the previous installment like scream five sort of started what feels like a new trilogy mm -hmm. so six is you know kind of like it's changing the location um, from the previous movie, which was set in Woodsboro. I think there's a lot of interesting parallels there. Yeah, no, it'll be exciting. Yeah. Um, but before we close the book on Scream 2, I do have my closing question that I would like to pose to you. Okay. In the scene where Dewey and Randy are going over the possibilities of the killer mm -hmm. and figuring out that the killer is making a sequel. Mm -hmm. Randy starts to tell us the, th 
the three rules of the horror sequel. Mm-hmm. He says that one, the body count is always bigger. Mm-hmm. Two, the death scenes are more elaborate. Mm-hmm. And three, he starts to say, never ever under any circumstances. And then he's cut off. Hmm. What do you think the third rule is? I never even noticed that. Mainly because I was, they were, I was so taken with them being in a Baskin Robbins. Um, <laughs> a lot of product placement for Baskin Robbins in this movie. Listen. Up with a box of donuts later. Yeah. <laughs> big, uh, big uh, ice cream, big ice cream getting into getting into the horror franchises. So he says, he says the body counts are always higher. Is number one. Mm-hmm. Number two is the death scenes are always more elaborate. Uh-huh. And the third rule, he says, never ever under any circumstances, and then we don't know. The only thing I can think of, and he would have a more articulate way of putting it, is never ever under any circumstances um like return to a previous location from a first film from the first film like Mm -hmm. i don't know you know like i'm thinking like them you know the fact that you constantly fucking go back to camp crystal lake um, (laughs) right despite what happens but um things that happen there yeah that could be good. I thought of never ever under any circumstances assume the killer is dead. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Which like is a little bit of a rule from the first one too though, where- Yeah, I guess like... that might be a stretch. But I just thought, it, cause it kind of ties in when Sydney shoots Mrs. Loomis in the head just to be sure mm-hmm. at the end. Even right, though. which she does, yeah, and like, yeah. Which that would make a lot of sense. Never under any circumstances. It looks like she's dead. We don't know if she, if she was actually killed by Cotton when he shoots her, or if it's Sydney's bullet that kills yeah. her. Yeah. Which she does because in the first one, Billy comes back. For like two seconds. Right. <laughs> and then you know, obviously, uh, Mickey lunges. <laughs> turns around and does this sort of crazy move. Um, no, I think that's right. I, I'd be interested. I never even noticed that he gets cut off, like, and he doesn't, like, I never even thought about that. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. That was a good one. Good old Randy. R.I.P. Yeah. Well, do you have anything else you're dying to say about Scream 2, Miss Mill? I don't think so. I'm excited to, uh, see scream six this week yeah yeah we'll see if it um lives up to the hype that this movie was able to live up to but i'm feeling positive about scream six yeah yeah i've been staying away but tertiarily heard just general good things right yeah cool that's all i need to know yeah so and and even if things go super south we always have scream two yeah so um all right i think that is going to close out episode 107 if you want to share your thoughts about scream 2 with us we'd love to hear them or after this weekend your thoughts about scream 6 we definitely want to hear those too 
And there's lots of ways you can do that. Miss Mel, would you tell them how? Yeah, so you can send us an email at spotterchatter669 at gmail.com. You can send us a good old tweet at splatterchatter666 minus all the vowels in that handle. Um, you can send us a Tumblr, I think they still call them PMs on Tumblr, uh, at splatterchatter.tumblr.com. You can leave a comment on the blog at splatterchatter.net question mark that sounds Didn't, right is that it we so changed the blog it, URL. domain name yeah and then i think we'd remember it the website in addition to that you can also splatter chatter 666 at instagram yeah you absolutely can splatter chatter podcast.com dot com okay splatter chatter podcast.com um, is where you can make comments on the blog and, and that sort of thing. Absolutely. All right, chatterers. Well, we will next be in your ears in April for episode 108. We don't have a topic predetermined for that right now, but it's going to be good. And if we're not able to do that special bulletin, that's also when we will share our thoughts on screen six. Sure. So lots of things to be on the lookout for. And for now, we want to remind you to keep up the creep. And we will say au revoir, adios.